Hello and welcome. Welcome to another edition of Atlas Information Live. We are glad to have you with us today. And today, being that it is the 10th episode of season three of Atlas Info Live, we thought we would take a moment to dedicate one of our live streams to the practical work of the spiritual path. And that's why in the background, you see a bunch of brass tacks because today we're getting down to the brass tacks. On our journey, we have no doubt visited many websites, read many books, listened to many gurus, observed many different practices, many different tricks and tactics and strategies to so-called advance our spiritual progress. And these can include everything from uh, Hatha yoga to crystals, to incense, to uh, Native American traditions of uh, sweat lodges. Uh, we might have gone and visited a shaman. We might have partaken in so-called ecstatic dance. There are innumerable, innumerable so-called spiritual, esoteric, and or occult practices, things that we can spend our time and energy and effort on with the hopes that somehow these activities are deepening our connection to our innermost being, furthering our progress along the path of initiation. If we even think about it in those, in those terms, many people on the spiritual path don't even know anything about initiation. They believe that they are already immortal, that they chose to be here, that they uh, are naturally and spontaneously advancing. And as we discussed in the last two weeks, if they are a light worker, it's possible that their experience very much reflects that. But that doesn't preclude their continuing their efforts in genuine practices that return real progress. In other words, essential activities on the path, whoever we are at whatever level we may be, essential activities related to the development of the various different aspects of our beingness. Because after all, we are multidimensional beings. We may be here in a physical body, but that does not mean that the sum totality of our being is here in the physical plane. And so if we are talking about our level of being and advancing our progress along the line of being, then we must consider the totality of our being, all of our selves on all the different levels of reality, of incarnation, of our multidimensional selves. 
And if we want to make real, genuine progress, then we must recognize that in each level of reality, in each dimension, there is a body related to that dimension. And in fact, there's, it even goes beyond that. In some dimensions, there are multiple bodies to consider. And just like the physical body, if we do not exercise those metaphysical bodies, then they will not necessarily fall into disrepair. That's not an accurate way to describe their fate if they are neglected. But certainly, they do not strengthen, they do not develop, they atrophy. Just like any muscle in the physical body, or just like any ability that we may have, we must practice it, we must exercise it, we must subject it to a measured amount of strenuous activity. Just as if we were lifting weights in the gym or doing laps in the pool or running kilometers or any type of activity, chopping wood, shadow boxing, skipping rope, whatever it is that we do to develop our cardiovascular fitness and our muscular fitness and indeed our skills. So practicing, you know, hitting tennis balls or shooting hoops or hitting baseballs or whatever it is that is required of us to develop and hone our skills, our abilities and our strength and endurance our constitution in the physical body, so too we must comprehend that the spiritual journey requires the development and the honing, the sharpening of skills related to our metaphysical bodies. No one can become an elite athlete without exercise, without practice. And in the same way, no one can become a master without practice, without exercise of the metaphysical vehicles, the development of the occult vessels, the esoteric vessels, the higher dimension, supra-dimensional vessels that we refer to as the human soul, the monad, and many names related to our higher selves. So, <clears throat> on that basis, we can approach today's topic with a general framework for the understanding of what constitutes essential spirituality and essential spiritual practices. You see that we have some uh, comments. Um, Moon Azavi says, uh, good day and hello. Uh, Tarkuma says, hi. Hello, everyone. If anyone is interested in popping on and 
<clears throat> joining into a discussion, there is the link to do so. So we can begin then this exploration by turning to the Bhagavad Gita. In the Bhagavad Gita, we are essentially given uh, this framework that we are referring to. And the four aspects, as they are named in the Bhagavad Gita, the first one is referred to as Karma Yoga and relates to the path of work of service and sacrifice related to the body. This, on the surface, may seem like service to others, and indeed it is. It's service and sacrifice for the sake of others. It is the expending of our energy, of our effort, of our time for the sake of others. We are paying our karma by giving of ourselves unto others. And we are gaining karmic credits, if you want to think of it in those terms. We are making an investment in ourselves by giving to others. It's why in the Bible we have the expression, it is in giving that we receive. And do unto others as you would have done unto you. That's the golden rule, Jesus's golden rule. And that is a very beautiful expression of the law of karma. And you get what you receive, right? We all know that intuitively, you, you get what you give. So on this very first level of spiritual practice, the spiritual essential spirituality, we must forego any and all concepts of private, insular, individual, uh, ascetic spirituality. The idea that we will cloister ourselves off from the world and we will go up onto a mountain and meditate for 40 years and find enlightenment. Because what are we doing for others up on that mountain? There is a very practical aspect, and there's also a very healthy aspect to going and serving others with our physical body, putting our, our blood, sweat, and tears into the service of others. And it doesn't mean you have to necessarily go and uh, go and work for a, a volunteer and start building uh, houses for homeless people, although that also would be very strenuous and difficult physical labor that would be for a good cause. There are many ways that we can exert our time and energy via our physical body for the sake of others. There's many, many ways, many opportunities for us to do so. To volunteer, there are an unlimited uh, number of opportunities to do so. But it could also be as simple as uh, 
helping a little old lady cross the road or helping her up a flight of stairs with her groceries. I mean, it could be these very tiny, seemingly insignificant acts. But over a lifetime, these acts add up. And then, of course, if we are good at something, <clears throat> if we are skilled at something, we have knowledge. We have the capacity to share that with others and assist them in becoming more knowledgeable or to help them in some capacity. This, of course, falls into line. Because teaching, although it doesn't, it doesn't appear to be a very physical, strenuous activity, nonetheless, it involves time and involves effort. And if what we're preparing requires preparation, um, then for all of those reasons, that too is a service. And in fact, if we are sharing the teachings with others, then that is one of the best or highest levels of service that we can offer to others. Because healing people, healing their physical body or helping them in some physical way, helping their, their worldly affairs in some capacity, these are all good. This is all good. Helping alleviate their suffering or helping them cope better with suffering. This is all good. Helping them with psychology, listening to them when they need a, someone to listen to, guiding them, helping them overcome an addiction they might have, or some other issue. This is all wonderful service that we can provide others. And if they long for the path, if they long for truth, if they long for a higher expression of themselves, if they long to make progress on their own path of spirituality, and we have knowledge that we can impart to them, to assist them in that process, in finding their way along the path, showing them the ropes, showing them, giving them some direction. Then this, of course, is most beneficial and of tremendous value in terms of service to others. But not all of us are meant to do that kind of work and that kind of teaching. But somewhere along the spectrum, we all have talents and abilities. We all have skills. We all have physical bodies. We all have some amount of time. And we all have energy to one degree or another. And all of us, if we are paying attention, we will see opportunities prevent themselves to be of service to others, to sacrifice and to work for the sake of others. And in many ways, if we are doing what we love to do, if we do, if we're following our passion, if we're following our vocation, our purpose in life, even, you know, to be a baker, to be a plumber, to be, you know, whatever it is that we are doing, but if we were born to do that, and we know that deep down, that that's part of our purpose, it's part of our mission in life, then that's part of our work. That's part of our service to others. But the point is, when it comes to this first aspect, this karma yoga, this first aspect of the spiritual path, 
you must recognize that the essence and the core of spirituality is others. It's not ourselves. It's others and service to others. Making progress, f reaching enlightenment, you know, acquiring powers, acquiring abilities, traveling in the astral plane, meeting with supreme beings, all of this, all of that is irrelevant. It is completely meaningless. If it's only for ourselves, because ultimately there is no self. All of that attainment, all of those advancing of levels come solely for the purpose of making us more adept, more capable, more filled with value that we can deliver to others. It's like becoming a greater and greater and greater fountainhead. So, so that more of that eternal spring may flow through us into the world and quench the thirst of many, many, many more people around us. So in certain spiritual communities, you may hear them speak of abundance and having abundance flow into your life. And sure, that's there is nothing in spirituality which precludes our ability to become very wealthy. But why? For whose benefit? Studies have shown, and when we say studies have shown, we mean psychological, sociological, secular, scientific studies have shown time and again that once people's basic needs are met, anything over and above that makes absolutely zero contribution to their quotient of happiness. Once you have a roof over your shoulders and you have enough nutrition and you have enough of the basics covered so that you can live a, a relatively, uh, relatively comfortable life, but by comfortable, we, you know, we mean you're not freezing to death, right? You're not in um, inundated in storms and rainfall and so on and so forth. And you're not going hungry. So once those basic needs have, met, or have been met, no amount of additional square footage, rooms, uh, clothing, technology, jewelry, automobiles, it's all superfluous after that. So if abundance, wealth does flow into our life, then it is for a reason. 
And if we are on the spiritual path, that reason is for that wealth to flow through us to others, for us to build something with that wealth for the sake of others, for the sake of assisting them in some way, whatever that may be. And that could be a business of some kind, that could be setting up schools, that could be creating some form of affordable housing, or it could be any number of enterprises that require, of course, because we are in the physical world, we have to be practical, to be in this world, in this day and age, one cannot create businesses or buildings or communities or any of that nature without physical resources. And those physical resources cost money. But money is just a symbol, a sign, an, an expression of energy. So in terms of service, we have, that's why we have the mutual exchange of energy. We have the exchange of money for services or money for goods. And if wealth flows into our life, then that is one of the means that we might have at our disposal to be of service to others. So this aspect is perhaps and the other aspect of this, why it's number one on the list, is because people who wouldn't even necessarily think of themselves as being on some spiritual path, they practice this. There are many people, and you, you probably know people like this. You have people like this in your life. They have a very strong sense of volunteerism. They will go and volunteer at the community center, at the retirement home, at the local hospital, at the orphanage, or any number of places, at the, uh, the soup kitchen, and any number of other ways in which they can find a way to contribute to their community, to their uh, perhaps their church congregation, many, many uh, opportunities to volunteer often go through individuals' religious affiliations, and they can volunteer their time and effort that way. So for many individuals, even if they don't even count themselves on this so-called spiritual path, but they will feel this number one, this karma yoga, strongly in their hearts. That they have to do something for others. And even if they're atheist, they can still feel this. And that's why so many atheists argue that religion is unnecessary for altruism. That we can be kind to our fellow men, even without religion. And that's because atheists, as we've often discussed, atheists, because of their innate, intuitive knowing that they need to experience or see the evidence for themselves, atheists are in many ways closer to being Gnostics than religious fundamentalists are. But again, let's, that, that's, that's another topic. We've discussed that many times in the past. But the point here 
is that the foundation to all spirituality is service and sacrifice and work for the sake of others, for the sake of the betterment of humanity, for the sake of the alleviation of suffering, etc. And we actually have done in the past a, an entire live stream dedicated to the topic of service. The live stream is entitled How to Serve and Who to Serve. And um, that's available in our, um, on our YouTube channel on, in the live archives if you're interested in, in reviewing that. So this then, this karma yoga, this service and sacrifice of our energy, of our physical selves, this relates to the body, to the physical body, to the vehicle, to the vessel that we are here and now. This is the, the work that, as we said, even if someone is not on a spiritual path, they can do this work. Even if they're religious, even if they're atheist, they can do this work. Why? Because they have a physical body, they have energy, they have time, they have talents and abilities and strengths, whatever those may be. They don't have to be, they don't have to be outlandish. They can be very, very, very simple. Can you serve homeless people soup. You don't have to go to school for that. You don't need a degree. You don't need to study how to serve soup. If you can hold a ladle and put soup in a bowl, you can work in a soup kitchen. You can volunteer. You can serve and help others. Right? If you can put sand into a sandbag, then you can help your community if it's hit by a flood, or you can help protect homes and businesses from destruction right? It doesn't need to be crazy out there, right? We're not talking about elaborate, fancy things. We're talking about very, very, very basic things. Everyone has a physical body and an energy and a capacity and time of some amount. And it's all of this relates to the physical body. The second item here, bhakti yoga, the path of devotion, and it's related to the heart. Now, by the heart, we're not referring to the physical heart, clearly. But the heart, the heart chakra, the heart center, is the center from which emanates the force of love and the development of that center is what gives us the capacity for devotion, the capacity for dedication, for passion. And access to the superior heart center, the superior emotions. Because, of course, we have an emotional body. And the emotional body, for most of us, is lunar. Most of the emotions that we are most familiar with are negative. So we all know fear, anxiety, depression, 
anger, frustration, uh, angst. I mean, there's loneliness. And the superior emotions, namely love, come from the superior heart center, that aspect of the heart which is not overrun with egos. Now, in this day and age, unfortunately, we live in a humanity that is very, very uh, intellectual. And as a result of that, many of us are stuck in our heads. And we don't have a lot of opportunity to practice and develop the center, the heart center, related to devotion and related to, to love, those superior emotions. The evidence for this, first and foremost, can be seen in the prevailing media, the so-called culture that we live in today, where either the intellect is being stimulated or the physical body is being stimulated, but the lower centers of the physical body, namely the sexual centers, so, for example, rap music or house music or that so-called dance music, most pop music or, you know, hip-hop, rap, rock, most modern music stimulates sort of primal animal urges in the physical body and in the lower emotional centers. And the same absolutely can be said for the so-called television and film, where if it's not horror or thrillers, then it's violence. It's violence for violence sake. And, or it's these massive $200 million tentpole amusement park rides that are all just designed to create visceral excitement and to stimulate all of the senses simultaneously and create this primal visceral stimulation. But none of it, none of it stimulates the heart. Even so-called romance and romantic comedies, which are mostly popular with women, very, very, very few of those actually stimulate genuinely the, the supernal heart center. Most of it is just base sentimentality. And sentimentality is an inferior aspect of our heart center. It's not the supernal aspect. That's not genuine love. It's, it's, it's sentimentality is what it is. But it's easy for a company like Hallmark to pull on the sentimental heartstrings. 
very difficult to be able to stimulate that's not even the right word it's it's much much more difficult to touch someone and make a connection with them on the level of the superior heart center so when a piece of music has the capacity to move you to tears because it is so beautiful and not because it's aesthetically beautiful it's just there's something about it you you can feel the love that that welling up inside of you and your heart center expands and expands and you can feel it like a pressure in your chest like your heart wants to burst and all of that emotional energy that positive energetic force ends up overwhelming us and we are and we we have no choice but to cry tears of joy because what we are observing what we are partaking in what we are experiencing is just so beautiful it's a timeless universal beauty and as we know from the poem uh, ode on a grecian urn by john keats in the final two lines of that poem he says beauty is truth and truth beauty That is all you can know in life and all you need to know. But unfortunately, there's very, very few opportunities for us in modern society to exercise and feel that kind of connection through our culture, through our music, through our films. That's one of the reasons why it is advantageous to listen to Mozart or Beethoven. Or other classical music, which you find particularly moving. And by listening to classical music, we don't mean having it on in the background. You mean listening to it and not doing anything else but listening to the music allowing the music to move us and exercising that aspect that having that experience of being moved to tears there are other practices that we can do and that we should do related to the heart and to our emotional um, emotional center and our emotional body and we'll get into those but it's just important to note how in general how atrophied our supernal heart center is in this day and age many people you yourself possibly yourself included you you might even just you might not even be able to feel your heart you might just feel a kind of malaise or kind of numbness there if you really meditate on the heart and try to put yourself in your heart you might not be able to feel anything 
without without some stimulation. And that sense of devotion, that sense of love, the devotion towards ourself, the devotion towards others, the devotion toward the spiritual path itself, really is something that should always be there. We should always be able to feel that as an ever-present companion on the path. That passionate drive, that fire that's moving us forward through thick and thin, guiding us through whatever storms cross our path. The next on our list here is pronounced Nyanya Yoga, and it is the path of self-analysis and knowledge related to the intellect. Now, speaking of intellect, here's our friend uh, Basil joining us. Hello, how are you today? Hello. Yeah, I'm okay. How are you? Oh, can't complain. Um, speaking of physical uh, uh, service and uh, sacrifice, I spent two hours uh, shoveling snow yesterday, so I'm a little sore from that. But <laughs> yeah, we we had a uh, we had 25 centimeters of very wet and heavy snowfall here. So, but that's so-called springtime in in Canada. So yeah, it's quite cold here still as well. Uh, cold, not cold. It's only, it's a plus three degrees today. Okay. So it's not, it's not cold at all, but, but that's the problem when snow falls and it's like hovering at that zero or one yeah. degree, then it's the snow. It's, it's wet and heavy and it's, it's, it's a real workout to, to move around. So, yeah. So yeah, the path of self-analysis and knowledge related to the intellect. Now, this can be um, this can be a little bit problematic because many people will take this to mean, uh, a path of studying and not understand fully what this aspect of the path entails. Yes, we have a mental body. Yes, we have an intellectual center. And the mind, as we have said in different ways, but including in our recent video, um, as Einstein said, the mind can be a faithful servant. Nyanya yoga, the path related to the mind, is precisely 
that process by which we transform the mind into a faithful servant from its present state as our master. And this is a very subtle process which can get many people tripped up and entangled because in order to be able to really appreciate the difference between the mind as a servant and the mind as a master, one has to have a deep understanding, a deep comprehension of oneself and a deep seated grounding in one's self, in one's innermost. Because we know many, many people on the occult path, on, in esoteric circles, who call themselves Gnostics. And they can quote and rhyme off entire paragraphs from occult texts. Everything from the from Hermes Trismegistus to Elias Levi to Madame Blavatsky to Gurdjieff to Steiner to Samayan Bayor, they can they've practically memorized the piece of Sophia and they can tell you all about aeons and archons and and all the rest of it. And the truth is they don't comprehend any of it. They've stuffed their mind. They've gorged themselves. They've committed intellectual gluttony through the intellectual center. And they've amassed and accumulated huge amounts of intellectual uh, knowledge, so-called knowledge. But for them, it's all just beliefs. And for them, they wear that so-called spiritual understanding or spiritual intellectualism, they wear it like a badge of honor. For, so for them, it also contributes to their mystic pride. And they do this in a, they're driven to, to, they are driven to do this by their mind itself. They are not the master of their mind, they are its slave. Because the mind, left to its own devices, is, its hunger is insatiable, its curiosity is insatiable, and its desire to control us is insatiable. Oh, sorry, there you go. Not on the screen. Yeah, no problem. Um, however, that said, you have another type of spiritual aspirant who may hear what we just said about intellectualism and how Gnosis is not intellectualism, Gnosis is experiential knowledge. 
And these people, they call themselves uh, mystics. And they say, I don't need to read anything. I don't need to study anything. I'm a mystic and I, I, I can get all the answers from, from myself, from my own innermost. And I'm going to do my yoga and I'm going to do this practice and that practice and I'm going to do my crystals and I'm going to do my other stuff and I'm just going to do my ecstatic dance and I'm going to meditate and I'm going to do whatever and, and all the answers are going to come to me. That's someone who is avoiding and allowing their intellectual center, their mental center to atrophy. There is a balance to be had here. Because many, many mystics have a tragically incorrect interpretation of their experiences. Because again, if you don't put your mind in its place, if you don't actively work with your mind as a servant, as your servant, your mind seeks to master you and it will feed you all sorts of information. And you will have some kind of mystical experience and the first thing your mind will say is, you see, there you go, you're an enlightened master. And you'll say, oh, I must be an enlightened master. And nothing could be further from the truth. But if you observe your mind, and you, you listen to the bullshit that it feeds you, and it, the mind will often tell you what you want to hear. Yeah. So, both of these extremes, okay, relate to an overindulgence of intellect and a complete neglect and avoidance of intellect. And in either case, in either case, you end up at the mercy of your intellect. You cannot avoid the mental center. You cannot avoid working with the mind, taming the mind. And we all know, we, and this doesn't we're not just talking about in meditation, learning how to quiet the mind. This, there's much more to this process. Because quieting the mind in meditation is an aspect, but only an aspect of it. But what we point out here, the path of self-analysis and knowledge, right, related to the intellect. Does this mean that we sit and we analyze ourselves intellectually and we try to come up with answers and reasons for this, that, and the other thing using our mind? No, that's not what this means. But what it does mean is if your mind has been trained to serve you and you know how to <clears throat> effectively 
use your mind, then your mind can receive the knowledge, the information in the process of self-analysis. And your mind can reflect accurately the self-evident experiential knowledge. Your mind can be an objective reflection of gnosis. If you do not work with the mind, if you don't, do not work with the intellect, and you do not work to cultivate that aspect, your mental body, then it will remain subjective. And whatever happens to you, your experience, your mind will present a subjective expression or reflection of that experience. And you will no longer have the pure experiential knowledge anymore. Your understanding of it will be tainted, will be twisted, and will be corrupted by the mind itself. And that's why you have literally millions of people around the world who have had one or two or, or three experiences and they believe that they are reincarnations of masters or they're resurrected masters, that they're gods already or whatever, whatever it is that they believe. Because the mind weaves an elaborate set of beliefs around that experience. And then if you try to talk sense to these people, they will, they will eviscerate you because they'll be saying, how dare you question my experience? I'm saying, I'm not questioning your experience. I'm <laughs> questioning your interpretation of your experience. Yeah. You see, there's a difference between the experience itself and the beliefs that the mind weaves around those experiences. And we, we looked at this in a video that we did on the hard truth about belief. And in, and in that video, we explain using a case, case studies, how it is that people can have absolute fervently held beliefs <clears throat> based on underlying fundamental truths that are unquestionable, that are absolute. And the mind cleverly weaves their subjective elaborate beliefs around that kernel of objective reality. And as that kernel of objective reality shines, it illuminates a subjective belief. And now the subjective belief is held as though it is objective reality. If anyone doesn't fully understand or grasp that, by all means, leave a comment and, and we'll elaborate further for you. But we also have our video called The Hard Truth About Belief that, that gives a very vivid example of how this works uh, using uh, the flat earthers as a case study. Okay, let's move on to number four here. Raja Yoga, the path of psychic control, uh, what Gurdjieff called the fourth way, related to the consciousness. This, if, if we could say, number one, the karma yoga, the path of uh, related to the physical body, the path of work and service and sacrifice for others, 
we can call that like the foundation. Raja Yoga, the path of psychic control, right? The path of consciousness, working with consciousness and the development of consciousness is like the superstructure. And the emotions and the mind are like two pillars. then the consciousness is like the edifice of the temple. Why? Because it is through the consciousness that we can access our innermost being, which is ultimately the goal, spirituality. And not just access our being, but the development of the being. Yeah. But the development of the being takes place more or less independent of us, but with our cooperation, we have to participate. We have to cooperate, but we do not directly uh, influence or cause any sort of development of the being. But we have to cooperate and participate in that process. And the, the awakening of the consciousness is part of that developmental process but if we don't participate in that then we are the obstacle to its development let's try to put that in a practical example we all have egos not just one ego but many egos Fear, lust, greed, pride, gluttony, etc., etc. We suffer from, you know, various addictions and habits, and you know, all the things that we uh, relate to our psychology that control us. We don't control them. We do our best to keep them under control, but they they work, they act independently of us, especially, particularly in our subconscious mind. They, at present, have our consciousness, bits and bits of our consciousness, trapped inside of them. So what makes, what gives our lust power, what gives our fear power over us, is the consciousness that it has bottled up inside of it. So that our consciousness at any given moment when fear rises to the pinnacle of control within our psyche, then our consciousness is filtered through fear. And everything we perceive is filtered through that fear. So we no longer have an objective view of reality. It is subjective. We are subjected to fear. And as fear subjects us to its whim, to its artificial intelligence mechanical programming, so our energy and our efforts and our thoughts and our emotions all reflect that ego of fear. The development of the consciousness is really the liberation of the consciousness 
from our egos. And to do so, we have to work with our free consciousness that we have available to us. If we do not work on ourselves, if we do not observe and work with our free consciousness and observe the consciousness that's bottled up inside of our egos, if we do not study and analyze and comprehend and, and eliminate those egos, then we cannot liberate the consciousness that's bottled up inside of them. And the consciousness cannot develop. And if the consciousness cannot develop, our being cannot advance. Because in, ter in terms of the spiritual process and, and us becoming, quote, more connected to or more aware of our being, it's becoming more self-aware. Becoming more aware of our self with a capital S. And that awareness is a mathematical quotient. It's a function of how much free consciousness we have to work with. It has been said that Gnosis is a science of consciousness. Everything else is academic if we don't do number four and number one. Because the other aspect of Gnosis is, in terms of the development of the being, is acquiring initiations, which you and I don't acquire them, but our innermost being gains initiations. And they relate to the level or the advancement or the development of our being. Those only come if we have the karmic credits to acquire them. And they can only occur if we have the free consciousness available to us to participate and to overcome the tests and challenges and ordeals that we are presented with that reflect the initiation that our innermost being is undergoing in the supernal worlds. Notice that we barely mentioned any practices. <laughs> okay. We've spent an hour just going over the four elements or aspects of development on the spiritual path. And frankly, there's kind of a fifth element here which is sort of, it's, it's not missing, it's implicit. And we will get to that just momentarily. But we did speak in number one, we talked about energy, right? We talked about our time and our effort and our energy. So if we were to map these four onto the tree of life, which I probably should have pulled up here. Um, nah, you guys should know it by now. So if you want to map these four onto the tree of life, we have the physical body, we have the emotional body, we have the mental body, and we have the buddhic, buddhic body, 
and the uh, causal body, which are related to number four. But what's not directly addressed in these numbers one to four is the etheric body or the vital body. That's the fourth dimension. That's the body of chi, of prana. That's the sexual force. And that's the reason why we say it's implicit is because all of these utilize prana on different levels. Because ultimately, all of these different bodies, the emotions, the intellect, the physical body, the consciousness, ultimately, it's all prana. It's all prana vibrating at different levels. It's all, that's prana or the akash is the actual, the body of the Divine Mother. It is the, it is the substance of the universe itself. And as it vibrates at different frequencies at different levels, it assumes and takes on different characteristics. We call those our different bodies, our emotions, our mental, our emotional body, our mental body, and indeed our vital body, our energetic, our energetic or etheric body. So that is why working with prana or chi, our energy, relates to all of these because, after all. You cannot exercise without energy. You cannot exert unless you have the energy to work with. So implicit in all of these four is, the, is a fifth element. And it literally is the fifth element. The four elements of earth, air, fire, and water all exist in the fifth element ether. And again, because you take ether, you vibrate ether at different frequencies, and they assume the qualities of earth, air, fire, or water. All of those four elements exist within the fifth element. They are all different expressions of the fifth element. And so all of these four practices or these four practices, these four aspects of the spiritual path, these four areas of work, of development on ourselves, they all exist within that fifth element, which is prana. So, physical body, so in that sense, when we talk about the physical body, we also mean the vital body because the vital body is the foundation of the physical body. And when we exert energy, and when we do any practice of any kind, whether it's in the emotional body, or the mental body, or the consciousness, or the physical body, if we are doing that with devotion, and we are doing that with love for the spiritual path, we're doing it for the sake of others, we are harnessing and using prana, that energy, our creative energy, the sexual force, and we are doing it for the sake of others, for the sake of our development for the sake of for the sake of the Christ for the sake of our path for the sake of the end of suffering of all beings that automatically makes all of those practices also working with our prana our energy our individual divine mother
So um, this list of these four elements are uh, on the come from the following lecture of Practical Spirituality on Glorian. And there is the link. And it's in the chat. The link's in the chat. All of the links that we'll be sharing with you today, we're going to be putting in the chat and we're going to be putting on screen so that you can have an opportunity to click them, open up a new browser window or cut and paste them into a list or whatever it is you, you uh, wish to do. And we remind you, just in case, that when they talk about the yoga of awakening, they're not talking about hatha yoga here. Yoga comes from the Sanskrit word yug, which means to bind together. In other words, union with divinity. That's what yoga means, to achieve union with divinity, union with our higher self and beyond. The be like Union with our innermost being and beyond, union with the being of beings the cosmic Christ, the Logos. So, but to get there, it's, it's a journey, right? It's steps. Like we, I think everybody on the spiritual path should understand, should know that it is a journey, <laughs> that yeah. it is a path. A path leads you somewhere, right? You don't take a path to nowhere. <laughs> and although it's very clever that, you know, philosophy for people to say, oh, it's not the destination, it's all about the journey, not the destination. And it's like, yeah, that's, there's truth in that. It is all about the journey. You have to be here and now in the present moment, step by step on the journey. But at the end of the day, you're, you're on that journey for a reason. <laughs> yeah. And that reason is a destination. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's not an either-or situation, it's both. And you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater just to be clever and philosophical. <laughs> and say, I'm on the path for the sake of being on the path. So you're just going around in circles forever? Yeah, we call that the wheel of samsara. That's called the wheel of suffering. That's, what's the point of that? Spirituality is about getting off of that wheel of taking the path that gets you off the wheel that takes you around and around. Because if it was all, if it was all about the journey, then you could just stay on the wheel of samsara for eternity. And many, and many do, and many do. And sure enough, their ego will rationalize for them how it's all about the journey. Well, okay. We have a couple, um, uh, uh, comments here we should get out of the way let's see uh lux custos if we're pronouncing that correctly says atlas my dear brother friend and teacher this timing of this lecture is indeed serendipitous as this week i felt the need to ask you a question could you please share with us your day-to-day -day spiritual practice routine uh no <laughs> <laughs> no, I. <laughs> 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 uh, 
look, um, can we leave can we leave this question to the end? And then maybe we'll answer that in the in the in the course of because uh, it doesn't make much sense to give it all away at the beginning, right? We wanted to go step by step. So we'll get to this at the end. But suffice it to say, um, we're a, we're a lousy, we're a terrible Gnostic. So the ways the, the the whole reason why I said, can we share with you your day to day pra uh, spiritual practice? It's because we're a terrible Gnostic. So don't follow our <laughs> advice when it comes to our daily practice, because um, uh, we we oftentimes suffer from uh, low energy and you know depression and other things that really makes it hell for us to try to keep on a so-called daily practice and stick to it. And for that matter, we would tell you, try to be charitable with yourself. It doesn't mean give in to laziness. That's not because it's very, very, very easy for us to say, oh, I don't feel like meditating this morning. Um, but you will find that if you try to force it and you really, you really don't have the energy for it, or you really aren't in the right frame of mind for it, you, it just, you would have been better off not, not making yeah. the attempt yeah. because there's nothing that'll make you feel worse and make you feel more, um, let you want to beat yourself up and berate yourself for being a terrible Gnostic or being a, having, you know, a terrible, uh, making no progress than attempting to meditate and then just dive bombing and crashing. Yeah. So there are, if there are other things you can do, do the other thing instead. And <clears throat> what we are going to outline now in terms of these four areas of de development are the arsenal of practices, the, the choices that you have available to you. <clears throat> because the reason why we wanted to start off how we did with these four areas and is to ground you in that foundation that yes people will tell you that you should meditate every day and yes it's a good thing to meditate every day but as we just said if a day comes along where you just you just can't do it you just can't meditate for whatever reason but you try to force yourself into it because, oh, I have to meditate every day. You will end up doing more harm than you will good. So don't ever try to force any spiritual practice because somebody said, oh, you have to do it on a regular basis or you have to do it regularly. You have to learn to trust your intuition and you have to learn to be charitable and kind to yourself because many of us are our own worst enemy and many of us beat ourselves up too much that said many of us <laughs> also give ourselves too much leeway and, and and many of us also say 
Oh, no, you can meditate tomorrow or, uh, you know, tomorrow. (laughs) No, you can meditate. You can meditate next week and I'll meditate next week and I'll do this. You know, and so there's that aspect, too. Right. But in between those two extremes, there's this happy medium. And in that happy medium comes the capacity for discernment when you know yourself and you know your energy levels and you know what's going on and and you know when you're in a a um a good place to do a certain practice or when it's just going to be a complete and utter waste of time and it's just going to demoralize you because you're going to be sitting there there's no use doing mantras or doing runes or trying meditation or doing pranayama there is absolutely no point in doing any of it if you're sitting there going oh god i don't want to be doing this right now oh i have no energy oh this is so it's just just feels so wrong what then why are you doing it it's the same thing it we would be giving you the same advice when it comes to physical exercise Right. You might have a a regiment where you do uh, resistance training two days a week or three days a week. Right. And and, you know, maybe it's every Monday you go into the you're supposed to go to the gym and do an hour of weights followed by cardio or who knows. And that Monday you just you just you're just not feeling it. You have no energy. You feel so weak. You're just your heart's not in it. Your body's not in it. It's just nothing is clicking, right? You know that if you force yourself into that gym, you're not going to be able to lift your normal weight. You're not going to be able to do your normal sets. You might even drop a weight or like, or, or hurt something, you know, have an injury, whatever. And, and in the end, you will have done nothing beneficial for you mentally or physically or energetically morally, emotionally, in no way, shape, or form will you have done anything of benefit other than you can tick a box that said, yes, this Monday, yes, I went to the gym. (laughs) But guess what? No one, and I mean no one, anywhere is checking the boxes to see what's been ticked. No, No Lord of Karma is ever going to say, okay, now let, let me let me see your uh, meditation schedule. And, oh, <laughs> Monday, March 7th, 2023, you skipped that day. Oh, well, it's, 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 it's another lifetime for you. Right? It's, it's never going to happen. Right? And, and, and we can laugh about it because it's so, it's so ridiculous. Yeah. And yet... And yet we know ourselves. We've been there. I've been there berating myself, beating myself up, going, oh, God, you're such a bad Gnostic. You can't meditate, blah, 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 blah. Right? I've been there. I've done that. And I've also, I've also done the uh, 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 doing spiritual practices dogmatically, fanatically, every single day, trying to go longer and longer and longer into meditation. And if you are not a seasoned meditator... If you try to meditate two hours a day, seven days a week, you will burn yourself out. You will burn yourself out. 
in any of these practices, just like if you, if you've never been to the gym and all of a sudden you decide I'm going to get in shape this year and you, every day you start going to the gym and you start pressing heavy weights and doing crazy cardio and spin classes and everything else. By the end of the week, you're going to be, you're going to be collapsed on the floor. You're not going to be able to do anything. You're not going to be able to make yourself, you're not going to be able to make yourself a protein shake, <laughs> let alone, let alone go to the gym. And you're going to be demoralized. All of the, all of that enthusiasm and energy is just going to get sucked out of you. And they call it, tech, the technical term for that is overtraining. Well, if it's possible to overtrain your physical body, rest assured, it is possible to do too much spiritual activity. I don't care what anybody says about, no, no, that's not true. You, it's, it's, you can never meditate too much. No, yes, you can. Yes, you can meditate too much. Meditate too much for you right now at your level. Or do too much mantra or do too much pranayama or, do, or certainly do too much sexual alchemy, especially sexual alchemy. You can do too much. Because remember, all of the practices we do use energy. And energy comes in a finite supply. Forget what you believe or what you've been told or what you've read or what you've heard about unlimited abundance and unlimited energy and spiritual this and spiritual that and raising your vibration and tapping into infinite energy and all of that nonsense. No, it's not like that. We are not at that level yet. You are not a sun and I am not a star. We do not have constant access to the unlimited energy of the Logos. We simply do not. We have to work with the energy that we have available to us. And to that end, uh, having a good diet and good physical activity and a balance between our physical and spiritual activity and a good, balanced, healthy diet, which includes ample amounts of those foods that give us the right kind of energy um, is, all, is all very important because if we eat garbage, if we eat low energy foods, then, you know, we, sh we shouldn't be surprised that we don't have the energy to do the work and to do, to do the practices. So what does that mean for you? It means different things for different people, frankly, because I, for one, cannot live a vegetarian or a vegan diet. There is no way. I simply cannot get the requisite energy uh, that I require to be able to do the exercises, the practices that I need to do with the intensity with which I do them. Yeah, same here. I can't, I can't get that from vegetarian. And in fact, Master Samael was the same. He said that he tried, he tried the vegetarian 
system, he called it. He said that he he just couldn't. He couldn't get um, the energy that he needed without, without uh, eating meat. Now, if you are able to do a vegetarian vegan diet and that's your preference and you're able to have the energy that you need to do the practices and work and service and sacrifice with the intensity that you feel is appropriate to you, well then go ahead. Well then, then do so. But know that energy and managing energy is one of those fundamentals on the spiritual path that if people are on the spiritual path and not talking about managing their energy or not working on harnessing and transforming the energies, then what kind of spiritual path are, are they on exactly? Then their spiritual path is all in their head. It, it's, all just, it's all just belief. It's all just another religion, a new age religion. Because while we can say that Gnosis is a science of consciousness, it is also a practical application and transmutation of energies. Because consciousness being the fourth way, everything that we do in Gnosis, we have to work with free consciousness in order to be able to experience and extract experiential knowledge. Gnosis, that's what Gnosis is. Without consciousness, you cannot acquire Gnosis. Because, because you can't, as we said, you can't get Gnosis from a book. You can't just study <laughs> Gnosis and stuff your head and stuff your intellect full of Gnosis. And you also can't just pray and fill your heart with devotion and fill your heart with Gnosis. I love Gnosis and I love Master Samael and I, you know, I love uh, all the angels and I love the masters and I love this and I love that and, I, and, and try to fill your heart with this sentimentality. No, you have to acquire through experience using the science of consciousness. But all that takes energy and all the practices around that require the practical application and transformation of energy. Still, because we are talking about energy and we want to talk about it on very uh, practical ways today, there is a course on Glorianne called Healthy Spirituality. And again, we can say that this relates to number one, okay? Taking care of the body and understanding that energy relates to the body, right? The, the foundation of the body is the etheric body, the vital body that relates to the physical body. And so there is a course, how to take care of your body for spiritual growth. It's called healthy spirituality. And the link to this course is in the description, or sorry, in the, um, it's in the chat and it's there on screen. So it's perhaps uh, ironic or I don't know what the right word is for us to be talking about, you know, taking care of your body, physical exercise, diet, don't eat garbage, but 
this is a spirit this is this is essential to the spiritual path your vessel is a temple our the body is is a temple and you want your body to have its proper upkeep and if you visualize the spiritual path or relate or comprehend the spiritual path as bringing the spirit, the essence, your being into the world, into this vessel, then imagine inviting the Dalai Lama or some figure that you revere into your home. Right? Would you would you allow that to take place if your if your home is decrepit and run down and dirty and dusty and unclean? Or would you make every effort to make your home as hospitable and beautiful and clean and inviting and welcoming so that that revered guest of honor that is coming to stay in your home that you are reflecting the reverence and the respect and the love that you have for that individual who is honoring you and your home with with their presence. So we've discussed this in the past as well that what's true for the body, the physical body, is also true for the heart and for the mind. So if you are not comfortable putting garbage and putting poisons into your physical body, then stop putting garbage and poisons into your emotional body and into your mental body. Impressions are food. The music we listen to, the company we keep, the films or television we watch, video games, any number of uh, books we read. Do we read trashy pulp fiction? Do we read do we watch ultraviolent movies, violence for the sake of violence movies or horror for the sake of horror or any of these mindless, soulless, heartless cash grab uh, uh, garbage media that Hollywood churns out like a meat grinder? And do we sit and we allow all this stuff to 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 fill our consciousness to fill our and it all goes right into our subconscious in the same way that all the garbage that we eat goes right down you know to our colon (laughs) because there's no nutrition in it there's no nutrition there's nothing there's nothing good to get out of it there's no goodness there for our physical body to extract from all that junk food 
And there are, people have done videos of this, time-lapsed videos. If you take a Big Mac or a Whopper or something from one of these burger places and you leave it out on the windowsill, you can leave it there for months and it won't even get moldy. It won't, it won't get moldy. Flies won't go on it. There's no, they won't, just imagine that. You have a meat patty and like the flies won't even lay their eggs on it. So maggots won't even touch it. Flies won't even touch it. Just, just imagine what, what little goodness is in there. But there's so little actual energy that not even mold will live on it. will eat it. And we, people put it into their body. People eat it as if it was food. It's not food. Listen, if mold won't eat it <laughs> and flies won't eat it, it's not food, <laughs> right? It, it might look like food, it might smell like food, it might even taste like food, but it's not food, <laughs> okay? So the same thing can be said for the garbage that we listen to, the garbage that we watch, the garbage that we play. If it's garbage, it's garbage. There's no value in it. There's no value. There's nothing for us to extract from it. It doesn't, there's no nutrition. It doesn't feed our metaphysical body. It doesn't feed our mind. It doesn't feed our heart. It just stimulates our egos more than anything. It stimulates viscerally and and it titillates us with sex and violence and so on and so forth. So, okay, so, so yeah, so um, take care of your body for spiritual growth. So spiritual health is very, is influenced by our physical body, our temple here on earth. Learn how to properly care for your temple and empower your spiritual growth. What is true for the physical body also goes for the metaphysical bodies. So this is essential spirituality. Okay. Do you have to take everything that they write here as sacrosanct? Uh, you know what works for you. Everybody's a little bit different, but as a general rule of thumb, okay, um, pay close attention to the advice given here and do the best that you can given the circumstances that you are in. Because some of the advice about eating organic um, and so on and so forth, we know that sometimes it's just not practical from a financial perspective. It's like because organic is more expensive or maybe not available and you know not everybody can jump in the car and drive out and get farm fresh things from wherever, right? Because not yeah. everybody's circumstances have that. So do so don't take this type of uh, information as gospel. Okay. These are recommendations. But the important part is to meditate and comprehend the essence of this aspect of the spiritual path about taking care of your temple. And that includes exercise, but so just like in diet, right? You don't want to overdo it. You don't want to go crazy with the exercise. We talked about that a little bit. You don't want to overtrain and you don't want to become obsessed with how you look necessarily or 
how big your muscles are or your cardiovascular fitness, right? Because you can overdo that as well. And it's not about, you know, the lords of karma, right? Are never going to look at your before and after photos, <laughs> right? And say, well, I mean, uh, you could have stood to lose a couple more inches off the waist there. Okay, back to, <laughs> back to another lifetime with you. It's never going to happen, right? So, um, So again, that balanced middle way, okay? So don't take this as gospel. Instead, uh, comprehend the importance of this aspect of the spiritual path as to take care of your temple, to treat your temple with respect because ultimately your temple exists for the sake of a deity. That deity is your higher self, your true self. So if your vessel, your vehicle, if you're one of these people that like to wash your car and clean your car and vacuum your car so your car is nice and shiny and clean inside and out, you do that because you want to take pride of ownership, but you also because people who come and maybe sit in the car, you, want, you don't want them to get grossed out. You want them to feel comfortable and nice. You have a nice, clean, shiny car just treat your body the same way that you would your car keep yourself clean and neat and and um you don't have to overdo that either right you don't have to go you don't have to like put on makeup before you go out of the house every time right it's it's not about that but just but maintain your vessel don't put garbage in your body don't put garbage in your mind don't put garbage in your heart because that is going to directly affect your energy. And speaking of energy, sometimes we have no choice. We don't have an option. We, we, are, we are forced. It's, now that I say that, it's, it's uh, kind of difficult to... Uh, think of a case study where that's so, but sometimes we cannot avoid uh, negative impressions. And sometimes, perhaps, let's say, we're watching a movie because someone recommended it to us. And they recommended it to us on the basis of it has lots of good esoteric information in there. But that or it's a it's a an allegory for this or that metaphysical concept or this or that uh, esoteric archetype and part of the process of discovering that for ourselves we have to sit and watch the movie and that movie might be filled with quite a bit of violence so what do we do? And the practice that's an essential practice is known as, and we've talked about this before as well, the essential practice is known as the transformation of energy or the transformation of impressions. To consciously transform and transmute negative into positive or at the very least into neutral impressions 
not to identify, not to attach, not to indulge the primal animal negative egoic centers that the impressions are trying to titillate and stimulate to remain relaxed, to remain calm, and to notice what centers in the body, in the mental, emotional, and physical centers, are being stimulated or titillated, and become aware of that, observe that, and let it go, and detach, and not to identify. It's very much like the process of psychological judo that we might perform in meditation, where things come up and we recognize them, we acknowledge them, we don't condemn them, but we don't indulge them. We just let them go. And there's more to this practice than, than that very brief overview. We've talked about it in past um, live streams. But there's an entire course on Glorian, um, on the transformation of energy. And um, and so there's no way that we can go over this material today with any sort of depth of this particular practice. But the basic fundamental precept the transformation of life, the transformation of energy, the transformation of impressions, is to not go through life as a zombie or as a victim or as a sponge where you are just you are you are just absorbing whatever it is you are exposed to. So one of the ways that the uh, Glorian, uh, that Christian explains this is think of the food that you eat. Again, bring it back to food. Imagine if you had no digestive system or you have no acid in your stomach and you have no probiotics in your gut. You have no gut flora, no gut fauna. So you, it didn't matter how much you ate. You could eat 24 hours a day and you would starve to death because you, you are not digesting what you are eating. and you would waste away. And in fact, the food that you ate would actually suck minerals and energy out of you in the process of moving, moving it through your body. And you would waste away and you would become, yeah, you would die. So the transformation of energy is the conscious digesting of impressions the conscious digestion of impressions. Not to receive impressions mechanically and not to receive them passively, but to receive them actively. 
Now, there's a caveat that comes with this. If you are not practiced with this, there are certain impressions which are very, very difficult to transform. So I'll give you an example. The most obvious, well, not maybe not obvious to you, but one of the most difficult impressions to transform are impressions of sex, pornography, okay? Even if you are a well-versed and experienced transformer of impressions and you've been doing this practice for decades and you are able to watch violent movies, you are able to uh, see uh, 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 disturbing images on the news and none of these things affect you in a visceral egoic way but you are able to consciously transform those impressions and stay detached and digest and extract from the impression whatever knowledge whatever value is there whatever nutrition is there in what you are perceiving whether it's music you're listening to or or what what have you even if you are well versed in this it is all but impossible to transform the impressions of pornography why because there's nothing of value in pornography nothing zero pornography is and it is it is very 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 difficult to be able to uh, take in impressions of a lustful nature and not have it affect and not have it feed our lust because for most of us lust is entirely subconscious most of the time I mean if you really just retrospect on yourself when does lust really ever reveal itself to you it's it's only when it's stimulated in some way but to attempt to transform the stimulation or the source of the stimulation is very 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 difficult because lust is the mother of all egos lust is simply the inverted sexual force and lust is in the body not in the mind and it's not in the heart it's in the body and the physical body that center the motor instinctive sexual center is 10 times 10 times faster than the mental center which means it is very very fast and very 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 difficult for us mortals to try to head off at the pass and intervene and yeah intervene. you cannot even be prepared by the heart it's too fast no because the mind okay the heart is 50,000 times faster than the mind Hmm. And the and the motor instinctive sexual center is fifty thousand times faster than the heart. 
Yeah. So we're not good at math, but we know that that's much, 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 much faster. And you know this is true. You know this is true because all you have to do is watch anybody doing uh, backflips on motorcycles or any other type of physical activity that like these extreme sports or whatever, or someone doing gymnastics and tumbling right over the, the floor exercises. And you know that in the moment that they're doing these things, they're not thinking about it. Okay. The mind can, the mind is way too slow for that. And they're certainly not emoting their way through through it. That's why in um, extreme sports, you know, they had that, um, they had that brand, that BMX uh, brand called, and, and their, their motto was no fear. And it was, there was a logo and everything else, because if these, these guys have no fear, they can't have fear because if fear were to actually enter into them as they were taking their BMX and jumping off these ramps and doing these crazy uh, somersaults in the air with their BMX and then trying to land on the other ramp, they would die. Even as if they tried to think their way through that process, they would die because the mind, the heart is way too slow for that particular activity. But the body, the motor instinctive sexual center is fast enough. And you can test this, especially if you're a man, you can test how fast and how powerful and capable your lust is because observe yourself walking down the street or in a or in a shopping mall or in any public place and observe yourself out of nowhere with without your consent acknowledgement or conscious decision making all of a sudden you will turn around and your eyes will go straight to some woman's bum some woman's buttocks some attractive woman wearing tight slacks or a tight dress or a miniskirt or whatever you didn't know she was there you had no idea she was there but your lust knew she was there and you sp- before you even know what's happening you're spinning around and your eyes are already going directly to that part to 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 the shape of her body and and her outline and so on her silhouette and that's automatic. It just happens like this. It's like, and there is no way you can stop it. You can't intervene. You can't, the decision has already been made for you. <laughs> right? As Master Samael says, the answer to this is you, to immediately avert your eyes and try to see the woman's face. He said, he said that uh, this is one way to overcome is try to train yourself to look at women's faces, not their bodies. Because if you're looking at a woman's body, you're in lust. There's no reason for you to look at a woman's body unless you're checking her out. Well, what's checking her out? (laughs) It's not your lust, right? Your innermost being is not checking her out, (laughs) right? Your lust is checking her out. But if you look at her face, if you look at her eyes, you have a potential to make a connection there. You have attention to, to, to that's if you must look at the woman then do your best to make eye contact or at the very least appreciate her beauty as a person 
as a as a as a soul, and the 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 uh, the eyes are the windows to the soul. So, all right. So, we're going through life. We have to transform impressions and digest those impressions so that we can extract the benefit, the nutrition, the knowledge, and the energy from those impressions. We're, we're crossing over some of these areas from mental to emotional to, to the physical body. So as we're, but that's why a lot of these practices, they don't just relate to one. They, they cover multiple different aspects of the spiritual path, what's essential to the spiritual path. So let's go to... Because of that, um, we've talked in the past about, hang on a second, here we go. We've talked in the past about the, uh, the rites of rejuvenation. Um, this is a very short book um, that's subtitled here, An Ancient Method to Restore and Preserve Your Health and Youth. The rites of rejuvenation do relate uh, most directly to our physical vessel or physical body. And these are uh, yoga exercises that are combined with prayer and pranayama. The most essential of these is the sixth and seventh right and we've discussed these in the past um, and we won't get into the details but instead we will you just want to here we go okay we just want to Put it on here and mention it. Okay, the Vairoli Mudra, the transmutation of energy, of sexual energy for uh, single people. The spiritual path involves the overcoming of desire and the overcoming the causes of desire. And that means overcoming the mother of all desire and the mother of all egos, which is lust. And being able to work with the sexual force, the sexual energy in a positive, upright way. This is another form of transformation of energy, the transmutation of the sexual force, to transmute the lead of ego into the gold of the human soul, to literally make love, to transmute lust into love. If the sexual energy in us is negatively charged because we are constantly indulging our egos, we're indulging our fear, we're indulging our pride, we're indulging our gluttony, our laziness, our lust. So that creates a negative charge to our 
sexual energy. The sexual energy wants to flow down and out. And that's why we have the expression to be down and out. People on skid row are down and out. Or a boxer who's been gets the knockout blow. He falls to the mat. And they count him. He's down. He's down for the count. And he's down and he's out. He's out cold. Okay? These words, these expressions have power and meaning. And esoterically, it relates to how the creative force is being utilized. And if it's being utilized by our egos, it's flowing down and out. It's being wasted. In order to transform that energy and transmute it into a positive force, we have to exercise and work with that energy in the right way. And typically, well, the basic practice for this is pranayama. And pranayama simply means to stop the breath or breath stoppage. Or some people translate it as breath control. Um, and we've talked, we've, there's an entire, we did an entire live stream on pranayama. And we read this quote on that live stream, um, but uh, we could, when, we can quickly read it again. Breath is, is it, breath is external manifestation of prana, the vital force. Breath, like electricity, is gross prana. Breath is thula, gross. Prana is sukshma, subtle. By exercising control over this breath, you can control the subtle prana inside. Control of prana means control of the mind. Mind cannot operate without the help of prana. The vibrations of prana only produce thoughts in the mind. It is prana that moves the mind. It is prana that sets the mind in motion. It is the sukshma prana or psychic prana that is intimately connected with the mind. This breath represents the important flywheel of an engine. Just as the other wheels stop when the driver stops the flywheel, so also other organs cease working when the yogi stops the breath. If you, if you can control the flywheel, you can easily control the other wheels. Likewise, if you can control the external breath, you can easily control the inner vital force, prana. The process by which the prana is controlled by regulation of external breath is termed pranayama. Just as a goldsmith removes the impurities of gold by heating it in the hot furnace by strongly blowing the blowpipe, so also the yogic student removes the impurities of the body and the indriyas by blowing his lungs. For instance, by practicing pranayama. The chief aim of pranayama is to unite the prana with the apana and take the united pranapana slowly towards the head. The effect or fruit of pranayama is udgata or awakening of the sleeping kundalini. That's Swami Sivananda, the science of pranayama. So there's a lot of terms and whatnot in there that, you know, we're not going to spend any time um, explaining that. But 
the point that is being made here is what we were saying earlier about working with pranayama, working with the vital energy, the vital force, doesn't just affect the etheric body or the vital body or the physical body. As Swami Sivananda makes clear in this quotation, it also affects the mind. It says, mind cannot operate without the help of prana. But it also affects the emotions. With what's true for the mind, the mental body is also true for the emotional body. Because as we said, everything is prana. All levels of manifest reality are prana. Nothing works unless prana is set in motion, unless prana is moving. And prana wants to move. And egos know this. The egos will take advantage of this. And so if we are not working with the prana and moving it up and in towards the, the head, so up and Adam, up and Adam, or up and Adam, as in, as in the Adam noose in the heart, then that prana will flow or tend to flow down and out. It'll flow mechanically, passively, and negatively through the egos, through our animal cells, and it'll want to flow down and out. But the prana must flow. Like water. If, pra- if water remains stagnant, then it becomes putrefied. It becomes rotten. And it becomes a cesspool for all manner of parasites and algae and so on, right? It becomes a fetid pool and nobody wants to swim in a fetid pool of a gross, stagnant, you know, but that's what our energy becomes if we don't work with it in a positive, active way. And that's what pranayama is. To circulate the energy through the body. Again, we've done an entire live stream on pranayama, but here is the link to the. Uh... I'll be right back. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, here is the link to the. Um... The course on Glorian. There are many, many different pranayama practices. Pranayama is one of those spiritual essentials, right? You 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 have to work with the breath, and you have to work with the the sexual force, the prana, in an upright, positive way. Just as if think about again, thinking about it like water, like circulating water in a in a uh, water treatment facility, or just the difference between a rushing, babbling brook and how fresh that mountain spring water is in that rushing, babbling brook versus the fetid pool that's sitting there stagnant, filled with algae and filled with all kinds of parasites and bacteria. So, as a single person, but generally speaking, even if you're a couple, even if the couple is practicing 
sexual alchemy, and we'll get to that in a minute. Pranayama is still something that we can do whenever we sit down to do any other spiritual practice. Pranayama can be incorporated. We can use pranayama as a, as a precursor to prepare us for the spiritual practice. We can interlace pranayama in the actual spiritual practice. So for example, in the rites of rejuvenation, between each rite, we stop and we do pranayama. Um, so here, okay. So this, the, this particular pranayama that's uh, recommended in the um, uh, rites of rejuvenation is the one where we're holding sides of our nostril and we're alternating, breathing in and out through nostrils. Okay, and that description is here in the, uh, the rites of rejuvenation. So we shut the left nostril by placing the index finger of your right hand on it, then inhale air through the right nostril. After the inhalation, we close both nostrils with the index finger and the thumb. We hold our breath for a few seconds, then uncover only your left nostril and exhale all the air through it. Now keep the right nostril shut with your thumb on it while inhaling the air through the opened left nostril. Then press both nostrils again with the thumb and index finger. Repeat this exercise two more times until you complete three inhalations and three exhalations through each nostril. Understand that these three inhalations and ex exhalations are equivalent to three complete pranayamas. So, so in the rites of rejuvenation, between each rite, we pause and we do three pranayamas. So again, we're interlacing the energy work through the... Um, this particular uh, practice. But the sixth rite here is, uh, if we can find it again, there it is, the Vairoli Mudra. It's working with the transmutation of the sexual force in a more, in a more direct and active conscious way. And there is a different version of this practice for men and women, and the descriptions are in the uh, this particular article, which we are linking right now. And it's in the chat, and here it's on the screen. These are the, the so the rites of rejuvenation, the sixth rite, the Vairoli Mudra transmutation for bachelors and bachelorettes. Okay. Now we have an option. We can go in different directions here. So, but we're going to stick with prana and how prana affects and how we can integrate pranayama into the various other activities.
and I guess the alt the 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 obvious way or the most when when so someone um, Lux Custos asked earlier if we can share our daily practice. So here's what we can tell you about when and how we use pranayama on a regular basis. First and foremost, it's when uh, we do meditation. We do not begin meditation until we have done um, a good 10-15 minutes of pranayama. And we will assume our meditation position, which for us, we can meditate in a chair, we can meditate kneeling, we can meditate, you know, in any number of ways, but our preference, our preference for meditation is lying down on our back. Not least because for us, we prefer to meditate in, around three in the morning. That's usually when we wake up. We go, uh, we go to sleep around nine, or we try to most times, and then we'll wake up at around 3 a.m. And then we will, we will uh, get up and empty our bladder if we need to, but then we will get comfortable without any sheets and with a very low pillow. So we'll get rid of extra pillows and stuff, not, whatnot. We have a very uh, shallow pillow that we use. And we'll lie down in the corpse pose, which is arms at our side, heels together with feet fanned apart. And we will begin and we will do our pranayama lying in that position. Now, some people recommend that you should be sitting upright, and in our experience, it makes no difference. Prana is not affected by gravity, and if, as we practice pranayama, um, the direction that, how we do it, and we, the, the type of pranayama that we prefer, we learn from Swami Sivananda, and it is... Uh, quite different from what Glorianne recommend. Because oftentimes you will hear people recommending, like for example, Hamsa Pranayama, you will recommend, um, you will hear people recommending breathing in very slowly. And then, and then releasing the breath on so breathing very so so mentally going and so in that version of pranayama the in breath is longer than the out breath or the two are equal but when we were preparing for the pranayama uh, live stream and we read 
Swami Sivananda's, we don't even know where we read it or where we saw it, but Swami Sivananda uh, explaining uh, a, his method or a different method of doing pranayama. He's saying how a lot of people practice pranayama in a kind of tense way where the body tenses up. And so the hamsa pranayama has a tendency to do that or people have a tendency to do that when they practice it because it has the auditory aspect of it we're actually making the and and it has this this tendency to create pressures in the body with the breath and so on and so forth and swami sivananda said that's that that goes against the entire idea of pranayama it says you you want the energy to flow but calmly and relaxed and in a natural way um, and you don't want to make any sound you don't want the breath to make any sound so the way we practice it is we will take a relatively fast is not the right word but a, a, a slightly quicker inhalation and through the nose, not through the mouth, not, nothing special, just an inhalation, but in, down into the, into the stomach, like into the solar plexus. And very, very, very slowly begin exhaling. Like we'll take a deep in-breath and visualize, like breathe into the top of the head, to the crown chakra. And then pause there for a few moments and then slowly exhale again through the nose you don't have to use the mouth you don't have to make a sound and slowly move the breath down to the third eye and then slowly from there move it down into the heart chakra and the heart chakra not the heart but the heart chakra so And this is all done completely silently with no physical exertion, but we do use tremendous concentration. So we are concentrated in our third eye. And as you know, as you concentrate in your third eye, you can move your attention around but you never lose the concentration of your third eye. And if you're breathing through the nose, the, 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 the pressure in this, in this part, right? As you are concentrated, it's like this slight pressure that you feel, but if you're breathing through the nose and the air is moving through the nasal canal, you can actually direct the breath in through the nasal canal to enhance that concentration. And then when you move it down in your heart, you're still concentrated, but then you're moving it. It's, it's very, very, very hard to describe. It's something you have to experience. But this way, the out-breath is much longer than the in-breath. 
if you're looking, well, or maybe not much longer, if you, something, if you want something a little bit more balanced, do in-breath on four beats, pause for one or two beats, and exhale slowly for six. So all told, you're looking at a one to two ratio. But in our experience, Swami Sivananda's technique is the absolute perfect pranayama to prepare for meditation. Why? Because of the focus concentration that it, it, at least in our experience of Sivananda's technique, the way we use it to prepare us for meditation, we are not only working with pranayama, not only circulating the pranayama, but we're also uh, sharpening and strengthening and enhancing and preparing ourselves for meditation by intensifying our focus on our third eye. And yeah, and that brings us to what is an absolute essential on the path of, and that's meditation and preparing for meditation. And there is nothing that can prepare you for meditation uh, better than pranayama can. For the very reasons that we read that Swami Sivananda said about the relationship between the mind and pranayama, or sorry, the mind and prana. The prana moves the mind. So if you take 10 or 15 minutes practicing working with the pranayana, moving it up and around into the heart, up and over the crown chakra, through the third eye into the heart, this is the E-A-O, right? The E-A-O mantra is the crown and third eye and the lungs and the heart. That's what you're, that's what you're working with when you do pranayama. Now, interestingly enough, some people like to use mantra to prepare themselves for meditation. And in fact, in our experience, doing this method of um, Sivananda's uh, uh, pranayama, the way we described it, just use in the nose, we can mentally do all the mantras E, e in the crown chakra to the third eye and then as we move the breath into the into the uh, chest cavity into the uh, heart chakra we do ah and oh but then also because that heart chakra is so huge the other favorite mantra of the gnostics is aum which is aum a o u m and that's the mantra of the lungs, the heart, the solar plexus, and the sexual organs. So if you've observed yourself doing pranayama, like hamsa pranayama, after you do the sa and you direct the uh, energy, the prana into your heart, the energy dissipates and goes throughout the entire body. But, but it, it, goes, it happens very fast when you use hamsa. When you use Sivananda's method, because it's so slow and methodical, 
and you have so much time when you have it focused in the heart, you can actually feel it moving lower and down and being dissipated slowly, more methodically through the rest of your body. Then as you feel it going through the solar plexus, your sexual organs and down, you can actually add in the the uh, the U, the U and the M and the S. So now, if you have the mental coordination, if you want to call it that, or you the conscious coordination to be able to coordinate all of this, just begin doing the pranayama and then add in the mantra as you're doing the pranayama. As you are moving the prana through the different centers, you can add in mentally the mantras. And this helps for concentration as well. It helps your concentration and focus and to quiet the mind because it's very difficult for the mind to now start, you know, going all over hell's half acre when you are consciously directing the breath and coordinating that. Plus now you're adding into the, you're adding in the mantras. Now, in addition to that, because you're doing pranayama, you're working with the divine mother Kundalini why not add some visualization to what you're doing now? You can visualize your Divine Mother. You can visualize the fire rising up, burning in the crown chakra, burning in the third eye, burning in the heart. We have this personally, we have this visualization of the heart chakra with two, like a, like a, a pulsar, with two, two spinning uh, balls of light in our, in our uh, heart chakra. We don't know why that just came to us and it just it just works for us like this 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 disc of energy but it's two pulsars uh orbiting around one another and if you do all this for 10 or 15 minutes you will be in a profoundly different state to begin your meditation. And in fact, very often <clears throat> we will begin our meditation why, as we continue to work with the breath, to work in pranayama. Now, Oh, uh, quick question here. Jennifer asked, do you do this with eyes open or closed? Closed. <clears throat> You're working with your third eye here. <clears throat> you want to visualize and you don't want any external distractions. We also don't do this with any music no uh it's just entirely <clears throat> with our own capacity and um but again when we began doing this what we're describing to you we sort of added layer after layer after layer after layer to the practice until eventually we got to the point where we would actually just shift 
from doing pranayama to meditation, we just kept doing the pranayama. We just kept the breathing up. Because you're breathing in through the nose and out through the nose anyway. And once you get into the all right, get into the groove, get into the zone of working with the energy, and it becomes rhythmic. We don't want to say automatic, because you want you want to do it consciously. But if you're going to be doing visualization and prayer and meditation anyway, and you can, like I said, you can combine the pranayama with your meditation. It doesn't take anything away from your meditation if you're doing this particular practice. Now, if you're trying to do hamsa, you can't meditate while you're doing hamsa. It's very, it's 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 more disruptive, right? Because it's noisy and it's more physical and it's this and it's like so for this methodology of pranayama right you don't have to hold your nostrils you don't have to do anything physical you're completely you're just you just are and you're just naturally working and allowing the energy to flow and we have found it to be very beneficial for meditation but the obvious question arises why meditate why is meditation an essential practice well if we go back to our list um well you know what we can talk about two three and four here the heart the mind and the consciousness. Meditation is an exercise of all three. The one thing that we can say that meditation is not, although there is an exception to the rule, but generally speaking, meditation, generally speaking, does not focus on the body. So generally speaking, when we're working with meditation, we want to forget the body in that sense. But there is a kind of meditation which we go deeper into the body and we use the body as a catalyst to go deeper and deeper and deeper into meditation. But at each level of that, we actually have a guided meditation on YouTube um it's called guided internal meditation and we actually will guide you through a guided internal meditation using the body and using the different levels and um uh, dimensions of the body so the physical body the vital body the astral body the mental body the causal body the buddhic body and finally the atmic body and how we go about observing and being and feeling ourselves and shifting our consciousness into each one of those those bodies in sequence as we go deeper and deeper and deeper into ourselves but again we begin with the physical body but the physical body is the first one we discard as we proceed to the vital body so 
it's not exactly we discard it, but we just shift our conscious our conscious awareness away from the physical, then the etheric, and then and so on. Just just like pranayama, there are many many different uh, forms methodologies for meditation, and just like tr transformation of impressions or taking care of the physical body, taking care of the vessel, um, <clears throat> meditation relies on uh, superior ethics. If we're, we can't go into meditation expecting, you know, all sorts of information and shamadi and who knows what, if, you know, you know, an hour a day, if the other 23 hours of the day, we are treating other people like garbage, and we are being filled with with anger and frustration and fear and loathing and depression and anxiety and right so you can't expect one hour of blissful beautiful experience every day and the rest of your day you're indulging all of your hellish primal animal self right but meditation is there to help it is the gymnasium it's a psychological it's the way for us to work with our emotions and our mind and our consciousness in a gymnasium setting so that when we are out in the world and we are being tested our mental and emotional resilience and our capacity to remain conscious is being tested we're facing ordeals we're facing challenges the capacity to deal with those challenges that capacity and capability was developed in meditation meditation is a safe space we should be undisturbed we should make sure that we do not enter into meditation in any place where we're likely to be disturbed we should be very comfortable this is one of the few times on the gnostic path and the spiritual path where comfort and security are important because there's nothing worse than having your meditation interrupted or you're trying to meditate but you but you're not comfortable and so and so there's something poking in your back or something and it's like your mind is constantly going your discomfort and you can't you can't free yourself from constantly being distracted by that by that uncomfortable chair or thing poking in your back or, or who knows what that said the mind will want to distract you so in meditation when you're meditating try to when you get an itch don't scratch it it's not easy but the body the physical body because you are leaving the physical body in meditation right you are leaving it behind you are focusing now you're going deeper and deeper you're, you're getting into the consciousness and you're observing your thoughts and you're observing your emotions and you're leaving so the body says no 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 the body's like a terrible two the body's like a pet right who wants attention 
He's like, oh, I know how I can get his attention. I'm making itch. And you know that you can't avoid an itch. You can't avoid thinking about an itch when you have an itch. <laughs> so guess what? But you don't want to scratch it. Why? Because you, if you scratch it, you think you're getting away with it. You think it's going to go away, but it's going to come back. Why? Because you're training the body to, that, that if, it, if it gives you an itch, it's going to get a scratch, and it wants to be scratched. It's just like a cat. It's like you're trying to work on your fruit word processor, and your cat decides to walk right across the keyboard. And the cat <laughs> lies down on your hands on the keyboard. Why? Because the cat wants your attention. The cat wants you to pet it, wants you to rub its belly, whatever, right? Or if you have a dog or whatever pet, right? It's going to get in your face. So the physical body is going to want to get in your face. So how do you, what do you do if you start developing an itch in your body? You go into the itch. This is a fascinating and, and, and powerful tool, a gift that your body is giving you. Use your consciousness and go into that itch and really observe what's going on. Why? Because the only way your body can create that itch is by accumulating a mass of prana, of energy. That it's now, because it's, because let's face it, itch is in the nervous system. It's tingling and it's whatever, right? But it's energy. So if you go deeper into the itch, you very quickly can move past the itchiness of it, the discomfort of it, and boom, you're in your vital body and you're feeling prana. You're sensing, you, you can have a direct conscious awareness of prana in that form. And it can actually be a catalyst for you to like like turbo shoot you deeper into yourself try it try it. It, it these sorts of things these are this is self-evident experiential knowledge words cannot explain this any more than a word can explain what an itch is <laughs> yeah something but if you experience if you try it if you do it you practice it You'll, you'll see what we mean. You'll experience it for yourself. Two quick comments here. You got better get them out of the way before uh, Kamal uh, Manzuki leaves. Uh, One thing I tried as a precursor to meditation was phonetic mental gibberish, like speaking in tongues, but internal monologue. Not to be profound like, oh, oh sorry, so that's, that's a comment. Um, and secondly, he said, not to be profound like the Christian context, but just to fill up the bandwidth with noise that would otherwise be taken by thought. So, um, okay, so that approach, this idea that we're going to keep the mind busy with something, but we're going to con we're going to do we're going to consciously busy the mind with something um, so that it it takes up all the the bandwidth. So that's why many people try uh, uh, mantra and prayer, and there's many other things that people can do. And if speaking in tongues works for you, then so be it. There is an actual meditation practice 
which uh, Glorianne describes as okay, meditation without exertion. Uh, I can't remember. Did we? Okay, so we'll post this one first. We'll post this. This. Um, There we go. Okay. Uh, we're trying to see if. Uh... Okay. So, in a nutshell, this course, Meditation Without Exertion, describes a methodology of meditation where it's uh, re relax, concentrate, visualize, and pray. Relax. Relaxation is the foundation of all meditation. You can't meditate if you're not relaxed. Concentration is the next most important thing, which is why we were describing that pranayama technique that we use to prepare ourselves for meditation. Relaxation and concentration are a part of that pranayama technique. So we're already two down. Visualization, we also include that in the pranayama technique. And last but not least, the last thing is prayer. So, relax, concentrate, visualize whatever deity speaks to your heart. Buddha, Krishna, Christ, Odin, uh, Mithras, your Divine Mother, Isis, the Mona Lisa, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The Mona Lisa is Da Vinci's Divine Mother. So you can visualize a star. You can visualize the sun. It doesn't matter. Whatever image speaks to your heart as your innermost being or the being of your being. But if you want to start slow and baby steps and you want to first make that strong connection with yourself then visualize your innermost being and then pray prayer if you combine relaxation concentration visualization and prayer If you have never tried to combine these in meditation before, then this methodology will take your meditations to a whole different level. And as you progress, you can again, shift from praying to your innermost being to praying to the being of your being, the being of beings, the Christ, the Logos. And we've described that as well. And the prayer 
the most powerful prayer that we have to pray to directly, whether it's to our innermost being or to the being of beings, the cosmic Christ, the most powerful prayer that we have is the Our Father. Our Father who art in heaven. That's the Pater Noster. And if you can learn it, if you can learn the Latin, if you can memorize the Latin and learn what it means, then uh, that's a very, very powerful prayer. I'll have to go now, but I'll see you the next stream. Okay, sure. Take care. Take care. Take care. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. So, clearly, this brings us to prayer and mantra. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's a whole bunch of different um, resources talking about this on, on Glorianne, but <clears throat> prayer is one of the methodologies that we have in order to focus on that, the, the second component, which is devotion and to expand our heart, to expand the heart center, the heart chakra. When we visualize and we visualize our innermost being or we visualize our divine mother or we visualize the being of being, the, the Christ, which we, again, we can use any deity in our visualization, but then we open our hearts and we pray with deepest devotion and deepest longing to connect. We are exercising our supernal emotional centers. We're accessing and exercising and moving the energies, the prana in that superior emotional center. And all of our mental faculties and our consciousness is focused and directed and concentrated on our being and or our being of beings. So now, and our body is relaxed, we're comfortable. And so we have completely devoted all of ourselves and all four of these aspects are inactivity because we're taking our time and our energy away from the physical body and we are now focusing entirely. But, but we had to relax that body. So we are... We are coming and we are putting ourselves into meditation and prayer. And we're working with all of these aspects.
Mantra, of course, helps to activate the different chakras. And the chakras are portals or gateways through, they are the metaphysical connecting tissue between all of our different metaphysical and physical bodies. Mantras and specific mantras related to specific chakras are another one of these essential practices because we're working and exercising and we're allowing the energy well what's the what's the term they like to use the opening of the chakras can't we sh we're certain that there is a um, a specific we're trying to think which book it is is it dream yoga Anyway, so there's a there's you will find in many way many places, but also on Glorianne. We just can't remember the name of the book that uh, I'm sure Master Samael writes about it in more than one book. The different mantras related to the different chakras. And what the different chakras do. I'm pretty sure that it's that it's dream yoga. That he that he goes through the all the different uh, but perhaps not. Anyway, we can't remember which one it is, but there are enough resources on the internet talking about the different chakras and the different mantras. But with working with sound, even if we don't do the sounds out loud working with the sounds out loud they affect your physical and your vital body but working with the sounds mentally go with the um, <clears throat> um work with the metaphysical bodies just as well so you can work with mantras mentally as well as audibly but Either way, the different sounds of the octave, which is what the do, re, mi, fa, so, um, the different uh, mantras activate, are working with the different frequencies and on the different levels. And again, this is it's all about exercising our metaphysical bodies and having the energy, having the prana flow through them, and the working with mantras as we focus on the different chakras and we can visualize the chakras spinning left to right and opening up like the uh, the petals of a lotus flower is, is the most common visualization that's attributed to the chakras. Um, sorry, just momentarily distracted there. 
Okay, so in meditation, prayer and mantra can be utilized while you are in meditation, but mantra, of course, and prayer can both be utilized on their own. But their, their importance and the reason why they're part of our four essential practices here is, again, because of how they relate to the stimulation of the different bodies and the, the, the mental body, the emotional body, the physical body. And we can use specific mantras to enhance specific parts. So for example, uh, the heart, the mantra Aum or Om is related to the heart. So if we work with that mantra, we're working with that heart center. The mantra E is related to the head, so the crown chakra and the third eye chakra. <clears throat> the different chakras relate to different uh, metaphysical capabilities. So, for example, the throat chakra, which is A. <clears throat> the mantra is A. That's the esoteric ear. So if you work with that mantra, that will improve your clairaudience, right? So there's clairvoyance as we relates to the third eye, our ability to see, but clairaudience relates to our ability to hear. So for example, to hear the voice of our innermost or to hear the voice of God around us. So, so it's clairaudience. So <clears throat> if we study the different chakras and what, what each chakra relates to, as we work with those mantras, we can develop uh, those different aspects of our, of our consciousness as they relate to those metaphysical um, sensitivities, metaphysical capabilities. And prayer <clears throat> relates to this because, of course, prayer is also sound. And whether it's prayer or mantra, both of them become more powerful, more energized if we sing them. So, <clears throat> in the same way that music in general has the potential to move us more than just the spoken word, music is 10,000 times more powerful in terms of its ability to activate the emotional center than is the mere spoken word. So think about that when you are practicing mantras or when you are in meditation and you are praying. Sing the prayer. And again, not out loud. If you're not a good singer, don't worry about singing out loud. Because prayer works because you're praying to your innermost being. You're, God is not out there. God doesn't have to, you do not have to make a sound for your innermost being to hear you. So pray to yourself within yourself. In your own mind, in your mind's eye, you can sing like Pavarotti if you want to. You can sing like Celine Dion. You can give yourself the most beautiful voice. 
<clears throat> and you can sing your prayer. Or if you prefer, you can use a style of like Gregorian chants and you can pray that way. But again, Gregorian chants, very powerful in how those words, those prayers, because they are prayers, those Gregorian chants. So all of this <clears throat> is essential because, as we said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's sound, that's vibration, that's frequency, that's mantra. That's prayer, that's song. And <clears throat> people talk about raising their vibration and so on and so forth. Well, this is practically how you do that. To work with these, the octaves and all of the notes in order to do that and to, to heighten and increase your connectivity in meditation. Again, we'll come back to our four aspects here. The physical body, the emotional body, the vital body, um, the mental body, and the buddhic body, which is the consciousness. So meditation and all of these practices in meditation are working on all four of those areas, but especially the consciousness and psychic control. Why is that? How does that come into play? Well, how it comes into play is because of the other essential practice Some people call it mindfulness. You might, most people call it mindfulness. But in Gnosis, we call it self-observation and self-remembering. To observe and remember all four of these and the hidden fifth element. The physical body, the emotional body, the mental body, through consciousness, which is the fourth aspect, and understanding that all of it exists in the fifth element, which is prana, just the sexual force, which is the body of our Divine Mother. Which is why in Gnosis, when we say self-remembering, we say, remember your Divine Mother. You see how all of this is connecting together? My meditation is where you exercise your consciousness and you're putting all of these different aspects of yourself into controlled activity, but under your control, controlled relaxation and concentration, so you can 
direct your attention. Why? So that in the other 23 hours of the day, you can observe your physical sensations, your energetic reactions, your emotional state and your emotional reactions. And of course, your thoughts and beliefs and mental cacophony that's going through your mind, your mental body. You, you observe your physical sensations, your emotions, your thoughts with consciousness. And all of that is different vibrations at different levels and different dimensions of prana, which is your divine mother. So you remember your divine mother. Self-observation, self-remembering. And why is it so important to, to, to observe oneself and remember oneself? Because the obscurations, the things that are enslaving our mind and enslaving our consciousness, our egos, fear, pride, lust, greed, gluttony, laziness, etc. They're operating in our physical body, in our emotional body, and in our mental body. So by observing those three bodies and our five centers, so our physical body consists of our motor instinctive sexual center. We have our instinctive center, we have our motor center, and our sexual center. By observing those centers, plus our emotional body, plus our mental body, we can observe how our egos are functioning and operating. And then we can take those observations with us into meditation. And we can use our visualization to retrospect on the events which took place. And we can play those events over and over and over again, like a forensic investigator looking at security camera footage trying to piece together the series of events that led up to a crime and a forensic film analyst going frame by frame by frame by frame through a film trying to determine what took place and how it took place. And we do this in meditation in, with the goal to comprehending the ego or the egos which were at play, which were causing ourselves and others suffering throughout the course of the, throughout the, course of the day, a specific event. This is called retrospection meditation. And retrospection meditation 
is also covered in the Meditation Essentials course, which uh, the link is in the chat. And there it is on screen. Meditating on our egos is another version, a transformation of impressions. Only it's a more advanced version of that practice because we are replaying those, those impressions over and over in our mind in meditation with the hope that we can extract from it the vital self-evident experiential knowledge, that which we seek so that we can learn our lesson. Those egos exist as the manifestation of our karma. They exist because of our past defects and vices, our past mistakes created those egos which are currently haunting us and causing us suffering. So by comprehending them in meditation, if we can extract in that moment of comprehension, it's a flash of lightning in the dark of night, then our Divine Mother can eliminate that, those, that ego that we comprehended. Because we've learned our lesson. We no longer are in need of the ego. We're no longer in need of suffering from that ego because we've, we've now learned our lesson. We say, ah, I comp okay, I get it now. I get it why that particular form of pride causes me and others suffering. Okay, it's it's there, it is, and it comes in a flash of light. This is not something, this is not an intellectual process. This is a conscious process. Many egos your Divine Mother can eliminate just as a single person. You're just a single person. You're doing the, pro, you're doing the pra practices that we've outlined so far. You're working with your energy, you're meditating, you're doing the transformation of impressions, and now you're meditating on your egos, and you have that moment of comprehension. Most egos your Divine Mother can eliminate. But some are very strong, very powerful egos that require a more intense fire to incinerate, to dissolve, to turn to dust. And that intensification of that fire happens in the alchemical chamber. We're talking about sexual alchemy now. This is a practice that we can only do with a partner. We can only do with our spouse. And this is the real secret of spiritual transformation, of spiritual development. We can do 
A fair amount of it is single people, as we described. We have the Viroli, the, the Viroli Mudra, which we talked about, right? And we have Pranayama, obviously. And we have meditation, obviously. But then for the real dug-in, there's sexual alchemy. And um, again, without getting into too many details, we've discussed this at length in past live streams as well. And there are, again, the resources that go in uh, greater detail. You can see by the, the number of links that we've shared, um, the number of practices and implications. But notice, we haven't talked, you know, anything even about, we haven't talked about incense or essential oils or crystals or dream catchers or, you know, we haven't talked about uh, uh, ecstatic dance or any of that, any of that nonsense. We're sharing with you the essential spiritual practices related to these four elements. The physical body, the emotional body, the mental body, the consciousness, and our prana, our divine mother, always remembering our divine mother. And alchemy is the sexual alchemy, white tantra, is the ultimate practice, the ultimate expression and devotion and working intelligently in an upright way with the power of our Divine Mother, Devi Kundalini Shakti. The awakening and raising of the Kundalini and working in the forge of Vulcan, right? The, the intensification of those fires, but working with those fires in an intelligent way so that our Divine Mother can incinerate all of our previously comprehended egos, even the ones that she could not incinerate as with us just as a single person. Because a single person cannot awaken the fires of Kundalini to the appropriate intensity required to eliminate certain egos that are so strong, that are so powerful that are so resilient. <clears throat> we would say this is the pinnacle of spiritual practices. And it is in many ways the most advanced of the spiritual practices. One additional practice that we will share with you um, there's a course on runes on Glorianne 
Now runes are, now you know what the runes are. This is the, the Futhark, the Nordic alphabet. And these are the characters of the Nordic alphabet. Now the way this works, if we can uh, click on one of these um, here. So the way runes work is we have a mantra and we will uh, orient our body, our limbs in a certain way to reflect that particular rune. And we will perform <clears throat> the mantra accordingly. And there are certain energies that we will invoke by doing this practice. Um, that's really an oversimplification, but it's one of the ways uh, that um, runes are one of the ways that we can work with the physical body. And we also work with mantra, but it's one of the ways that we can incorporate the physical body into spiritual practice <clears throat> in a very specific way, because all the runes have very specific effects, just like most mantras are, are for a specific purpose. So having said that, is our runes an essential practice? They are a very powerful supplemental practice. Do you absolutely have to do runes? It's advantageous to you if you do runes. But um, if you do not do runes, it's not the end of the world. It's just that it's another practice for you to consider. And it's important. It's one of these things that it will enhance your understanding of esotericism, your spiritual knowledge in general, uh, by, by going over this course. And there are certain runes which are very powerful and very advantageous. Uh, for example, the runes Fa, Dorn, and Os. And they can be found in this course. It's the lectures right here. Okay. And um, there's an explanation of the runes. Here's a pretty good illustration of of the concept of runes where, you know, you make the rune fa holding up your two arms left over right. And then here's Dorn with the hands on the waist and then os in the, in the, the revert, which is like the reverse of fa. These courses explain what each of the runes mean. And, uh, their, their association and also if I can find it, there's usually some kind of video or, um, yeah. Okay. So this is just an animated GIF, but it shows you 
each step of how to do the runes properly. There have been also um, some videos on YouTube that show also people doing the different practices and, and so on. But um, if you only learn one set of runes, uh, learn this one. You will find this one very useful, especially if you're low on energy. It's uh, something that's best done in the morning facing the east. And read read this lecture, um, and you'll understand why. Because again, energy is so important to us on the path, and having enough energy, and having the energy required to do the work. So this is one of those uh, practices that will help you uh, on that front. What have we missed? What have we forgotten? How about, how about saying a blessing before you eat? We talked about food earlier and healthy spirituality and not putting garbage into your body and treating your mortal vessel as a temple and treating it with respect and dignity. One of the aspects of that is always blessing your food before you consume it, remembering your divine mother, thanking her for the sacrifice of the elementals. Their bodies become our bodies. Their energy becomes our energy. May we always use it for the sake of others, for the sake of the end of suffering. In the name of Christ, for the glory of Christ, and by the majesty of Christ. It's a simple prayer. It's a simple little blessing. But you say it while focused and concentrated on the food that you are about to eat. So you are energizing that food with the, with the right energy, with the upright positivity and the understanding, the comprehension of what it is you are about to do. You're about to consume the bodies of other beings. They are making a sacrifice for you. So what is the sacrifice that you are going to make, that you are willing to make? And how will you affect the karma of these beings by how you utilize their energy. And by eating other beings, I don't just mean meat. I mean, if you eat plants, you are eating the bodies of other beings. And how you use that energy, how you utilize that energy will affect their karma. Everything is connected. Everything is interconnected that way. And if someone makes a sacrifice for us, we have to pay it forward. And if we just become, if we're just selfish and just use that energy and for gluttony and use it for our own pleasure and, and, you know, and we don't pay it forward, then that actually reflects very poorly on the being who sacrificed themselves for us. <clears throat> There's a lot of consideration. There's a lot to consider in terms of genuine spiritual development and spiritual enhancement. And spirituality is far more than just feeling spiritual or calling yourself spiritual or there's way more to it than the new age will ever understand. They don't even, they don't want to understand it. They don't want to teach it. They want to oversimplify.
everything that we've shown and shared today and all the links have been on screen at least once here's the i, th I think we put the runes there's the runes but they're all in the chat hopefully you'll be able to see them on the replay as well but they've all been on screen and you also can find these lectures also on Glorianne just by doing a search for the uh, for these topics by name, right? But this whole um, essential spiritual path comes down to the recognition of even though there's four listed here, there's five things. Physical body, the emotional body, the mental body, the consciousness, and our Divine Mother, the prana, the energy, the vital body, the, the etheric body, and all the levels of prana, our Divine Mother. And working in a balanced, harmonic way to develop and exercise all of these as we rid ourselves of the obscurations of our egos of our defects and vices of all that within us which subjects us and enslaves us and prevents us and keeps us from knowing ourselves directly it keeps us trapped in this false self. So we have self-observation and self-remembering. Remember your Divine Mother. Observe your physical body, your, emotional, your emotions, your thoughts. Remember your Divine Mother. We have the transformation of impressions. We have pranayama. We have the rites of rejuvenation, specifically the Vairoli Mudra. You know what? Let's 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 do it this way. So, what did we say? We said um, let's go back and do these in the order that we that we did them. So, okay. So here's our four. So we have healthy spirituality. We have taking care of your body for spiritual growth. We have the transformation of energy. That's the transformation of impressions. So that's trying to take everything that we, so not, not being a passive observer and not just being a sponge and just absorbing everything around us uh, automatically, mechanically, but consciously and digesting things consciously, moment by moment. It's an aspect of mindfulness, an aspect, this is the aspect of self-observation where it's one eye in, one eye out. But we are conscious and we're consciously actively digesting in our consciousness the impressions around us. And we're extracting the self-evident experiential knowledge from our experiences and without identification and without attachment. So here's pranayama, which we spent a good deal of time talking about that. And the rites of, re, re, the rites of rejuvenation, specifically the sixth rite, or the Vairoli mudra, the transmutations for bachelors and bachelorettes. That relates directly to alchemy. But this is what we can do as single people, this is what we do with couples. And then, of course, we have meditation. We have the essentials of meditation, 
and there's two different uh, articles here, the uh, meditation essentials, and we have something called meditation without exertion. And meditation without exertion includes uh, the incorporation of prayer. And along with prayer, we have mantra. And mantra can be done outside of meditation, and mantra can be done as a separate practice. Oh, we didn't even get into uh, these two, did we? Oh, oh, geez. It's a good thing we prepared some of this stuff ahead of time because there's a few more things we have to talk about. Well, we talked about initiation briefly, about our innermost being developing levels that, that are called initiations. So, again... This is something that uh, the New Age knows nothing about. All of these four steps and everything that we've discussed and described is all about this. The path of initiation is the path. Initiations refer to the different levels acquired by the innermost being, by our true self. <clears throat> so if you want to know about initiation and about the nature of the path, now this is a very esoteric topic because the path of initiation relates directly to our innermost being. We do not receive initiations. Our innermost being does. Our true self does. But we have to cooperate. We have to participate. Or else he can't receive those initiations. So this will include as a link, as a supplementary material. And there's the link on screen as well, just in case the um, in the replay, the chat doesn't appear. Which, So that's the name of the course, The Path of Initiation. And the link is on the screen. Now, related to this, is the path of the bodhisattva. Now, this is another path. This is called the direct path to the absolute. The path of initiation can lead us to nirvana and lead us to what is called the spiral path. But the path of the bodhisattva um, gives up nirvana. It, 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 when we are on the direct path, the path of the we forego nirvana. The path of the bodhisattva is a path of suffering and sacrifice for humanity. It's a difficult path, but by no means an impossible path. Many saints, prophets, and avatars have walked it. It is a path of death and resurrection. Psychological death and uh, physical death and resurrection to become a resurrected master.
unless you are called to this path, there's no particular reason why you have to burden yourself. Or um, obsess over it. However, it's worthwhile to at least take some time, study it. Because you can't really know if you're called to walk the path of the bodhisattva unless you know what it is, unless you know what it's about, and unless you know a little bit about the people who walked it before you. Last but not least, at the we don't we don't want to we don't want to forget anything. <laughs> so we're gonna save. Well, uh, would you call call it saving the best for last? I don't know. Astro projection, or astro travel, and dream yoga. This is something that. Uh, many people practice, many people do. It's also known as lucid dreaming. You may have heard of it in those terms. And is this an essential practice? It can be. If there's something in the astral plane that you are required to see, required to experience, if you are required to have experiences on the astral plane, then then this could very well be part of your path. It could also be part of your path to have some astral exper experiences and then have your astral body taken away from you or expressed in a better way. Your innermost being, your divine mother, go to great lengths to energize and charge and strengthen and and empower your astral body so that you could have a few experiences on the astral plane. And then once you've had the, the necessary experiences, they no longer support you continuing to have them. In which case you <clears throat> have to go through all of the other practices, particularly working on your egos and working with the Vairoli Mudra and working with sexual alchemy, white Tantra, in order to create or, and strengthen your astral body to be able to once again uh, do astral projection. From our point of view and in our experience, we've had a number of different experiences in the astral plane, but then our astral body was taken away from us. Said, okay, you had you saw everything you needed to see, you did everything you needed to do. And from our vantage point, we see far too many people putting far too much emphasis 
on astral projection and dream yoga. We also see individuals who are unable to astral project and unable to astral travel getting kind of mystic shame and becoming envious or becoming self-deprecating saying oh all these people in the new age and all these other people can lucid dream and they can astral project and they can do all these things and i can't do any of it so we include this because it's there it's something you can do and it's something that can help you we encourage you to study the course, to understand why it can be beneficial and why it can be important. But you don't need to obsess over this. You don't need to obsess over astral projection. And you don't need to make this a must-have, must-do practice. We had to address it we had to talk about it. it's kind of like the elephant in the room but it's the last thing that we're talking about which sort of tells you on the level of importance how important this is on the other hand the dream yoga aspect okay the dream yoga aspect We can learn a great deal by studying our dreams and meditating on our dreams. So don't discount that aspect of astral projection. Even if you can't lucid dream, there's still a great deal of value to be had from, from regular dreams. But regardless, we include this because many people, including Master Samael, put a fair amount of emphasis on astral projection. And we also have benefited from our experiences. For example, if you have the ability to project in the astral plane, ask to see your innermost being, ask to see your divine mother. These are the first things that you should do if you ever have a lucid dream, or in other words, awaken in the astral plane. It's the first thing you should do is ask to see yourself as you are. To see your true self, to see your Divine Mother. Beyond that, the more you learn, the more you study about esotericism, about Gnosis, uh, the more you will know about the things you should and shouldn't do on the astral plane. And uh, yes, there's, you can benefit greatly from this practice. But we hesitate to say that it is an essential practice and that it is an essential part of the spiritual path. It is an aspect which may or may not apply to you at your level. And if it does, then you will know that to one degree or another, and you will pursue it accordingly. But if you find yourself obsessing over it, and, you, and if you find yourself becoming attached and identified and desiring 
to have astral experiences or indeed any spiritual experience for that matter, then you may question your, your motives. All right. Only took us three and a half hours. But unless we're forgetting something, and by all means, this is the time for you to let us know if we're forgetting something. <laughs> um, what else is essential to you on the spiritual path and the spiritual journey that we haven't mentioned? Um, I'm sure there may be something that we forgot. Actually, there is something we forgot. Uh, okay. Well, we could keep going on different things. Okay, so this is something that we, we should mention. Um, this is part of the prayers and mantras, but specifically the prayers and mantras of protection, especially if you want to go, especially if you want to go um, doing astro travel, astro projection, you need to study this course. So this is an aspect of the spiritual journey that maybe many people won't encounter or don't think they encounter, but there are negative entities that are out to do us harm, that are out to uh, impinge our ability to advance. And so um, learn, learn the uh, prayers and mantras for protection. Specifically, the conjuration of the seven, the conjuration of the four, and the, uh, the invocation of uh, King Solomon. And there's there's a few others. There's a there's a Gnostic prayer book, which is a very thin, light book. It's it's very inexpensive, um, which teaches you all of these as well. But I think they're also in this course. That's on the screen. This is again. This is. We would say that this is a uh, an essential spiritual essential if you plan on projecting into the astral plane because. Many, many, many people astral travel and then they don't realize they're in the lunar astral plane and they find themselves confronted by some resplendent being of light. And that being pretending to be an angel or a master or a god or whatever convinces them to become their channeler or to become their whatever, become their messenger, become whatever. And then they end up they end up being a useful idiot and working for a, uh, a powerful demon because they don't know how to protect themselves. Or many others, just they project into the astral plane and they just find themselves becoming, they just get attacked by a demon because they don't realize there's a difference between the solar astral plane and the lunar astral plane. And then you can lucid dream and fall to the lunar astral plane and you can get attacked by demons. 
And if they don't know these, if they don't, if they haven't done this course and they don't know their prayers and mantras of protection, they don't know how to ask their divine mother to deliver them their sword and their shield, they don't know, they can't defend themselves on the astral plane. So we would say that in terms of prayers, the Paternoster, the Our Father, the Hail Mary, and uh, and these prayers of of uh, the prayers of protection would be uh, would be spiritual essentials for anybody who's doing any serious esoteric work. Okay, uh, Kamal Manzuki says one time I awoke in a lucid dream and implicitly knew to go outside to meet someone, and we walked ways, and uh, we walked ways and we had a short conversation. I knew that I knew who it was, but not how. Their face shifted, different faces, the whole time, some of whom I knew in real life. Could this have been uh, my guardian angel or divine mother or something else? It was most likely your divine mother. And the only reason why we say that is because of your description, the fact that her, uh, their face kept shifting. She kept morphing and changing into someone else. And that's the definition of the Divine Mother. Our Divine Mother can appear to us in any form. Whoever she wishes, in whatever form is most appropriate and most important to us. Having said that, if you do have an opportunity to have another lucid dream, awaken in the astral, uh, be sure to ask to see her. Just ask to see her or ask to see your, your true self. Yeah, um, that's, but that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter to your divine mother. She can appear to you as whatever she wants. She's, she's divine mother nature. She's all of manifest reality is the divine mother all manifest reality is is feminine so so even you and i are fundamentally feminine everything in the universe is feminine everything in the universe is the body of the divine mother so she could have appeared to you as just he just he's but then again don't take our word for it right if you really want to know for sure then Awaken in the astral plane, have another lucid dream. There's the, we shared with you the course on uh, dream uh, yoga, dream yoga and astral projection. And ask to see her. Or, or ask to see your innermost being, your true self. Your true self you, you wouldn't be shifting and changing his faces and making himself look all, you know. So it, And your guardian and and guardian angel is a um, is a is a particularly Christian term. Your guardian angel is is always your divine mother anyway. Just it's just she appears to Christians in that form because that's that's what they would understand, right? Your divine Da Vinci's divine mother appeared to him as the Mona Lisa because she knew that he was going to paint her. Um, 
but if she appeared to just a, bo a born again Christian looking like the Mona Lisa, then they wouldn't, they would know who this woman was because they don't, right. They don't have that capacity to, they, they haven't studied and they only, they only understand what they understand. So that's why they interpret that as uh, as guardian angel. Anyone else have any other questions or comments or concerns or did we miss anything? Did we forget anything? Anything that you think is essential on the spiritual path? But at least now you know how much material there is and how much work there is and how much how much there is to study and master on the spiritual path that doesn't include crystals or dream catchers or psychedelics or or uh you know ecstatic dance or any of the other you know trappings that are uh, that are pitched out there that are sold to people and you know we don't we didn't include any meditation cds or we did say listen to beautiful music and you can listen to mantras you can or do mantras and so music is important and you can listen to beautiful flute music so we often will listen to um, uh, native flute or uh, tibetan flute so that's that's all fine that's all well and good music and mantra and prayer those are all good gregorian chants are and you can get all of you can listen to all this stuff for free on youtube or spotify i mean it's all there's lots of stuff we we're not a big fan of the um of the so-called specific meditation music and we even even ourselves we never use any of those meditation CDs or anything like that. And um, we also don't like guided meditation. We only have what one or two guided meditations on our own YouTube channel. And only because those specific meditations are specific. And so we just wanted to share that with you, but we don't recommend you using that all the time. Learn, use, a guided meditation CD should be used once or twice maximum. And then from that point forward, if you want to do the visualization or anything else, you should just go ahead and do that. But you don't need the CD anymore. You don't need to be guided every time. You should be guiding yourself. Benjamin asks, how can we know if we are gaining or losing spiritual spiritually? For example, it is inevitable that we feel angry sometimes. And after that, we feel so drained. How can we recover by forgiving those who have wronged us? Okay, so there's a couple different questions in there. The spiritual journey is the alm of life, the analogous ultimate methodology. It is, it is a spiral, okay? And we've talked about this before, and we talk about it in our video on the Alm of Life. That spiral is Jacob's ladder. 
Okay, now Jacob's ladder, if you know, it's a ladder that goes up to heaven and down to hell, and it passes through earth. And all the angels and demons go up and down this ladder, and so do we. But the thing about Jacob's ladder is, is that you have to descend before you can ascend. So what it is, is the alm of life, which is a spiral, an expanding spiral. So if you draw a spiral on a piece of paper, and then you mask the two sides of the spiral, what you end up are the rung with are the rungs of the ladder. Okay, and it looks like you can just go up and down that ladder, right? But in reality, you have to uncover the spiral and you realize the only way to progress to the next higher rung on a spiral ladder is to descend to the previous lower rung because it's one line, it's one continuum. So what that means is, how do you know that you are gaining or losing spiritually? When the tests get harder, when the ordeals are more intense, when the anger you feel is greater than how you used to feel it, more intense, you perhaps feel it less often, and you're not triggered by the same things anymore as you used to be. Now it takes much more to trigger you. But when you are triggered, the anger is so intense and it's so heavy. And yeah, it completely drains you. And that's because you're fighting ever more powerful expressions of anger. You're, you're, you're fighting more powerful demons of anger inside of you, egos. The spiritual path doesn't get easier. Think of a mountain climber climbing up a mountain. The climb doesn't get easier. The higher you go, it gets harder. But you've been prepared for it. Just like when you're playing a video game. As you progress in levels, the levels get harder and harder and harder and harder. They don't get easier. As for feeling angry, losing control and, and anger and feeling drained, how can we recover? I, this uh, statement, forgiving those who have wronged us, think of it not in terms of someone has wronged you. Think of it in terms of you've been tested. Someone was testing you. And if you lost your temper, and if you believe that they were wronging you, then you know you've you've got more work to do on yourself. Now that's not an that's not an invitation to go and berate yourself or feel ashamed. It's just a recognition that the people who trigger us are a mirror to us, and they're there to help us understand ourselves, to help us know ourselves. And they bring to the surface very powerful egos that are buried deep in our subconscious mind. So thank God that that person was in your life to test you and to draw that ego up to the surface 
so you could catch a glimpse of it, that anger. So how do you recover by feeling so drained? Um, you can, anything that gives you energy, but listen to some beautiful music, anything that will raise your vibration, get some rest, get, you know, relax. Again, just, you know, try to sit down and relax and meditate and um, listen to beautiful music, watch a beautiful movie. Um, you know, get some sleep, get some good sleep, go to bed early and wake up early and meditate. If you don't have any energy to meditate that day, that evening, then wait until the next morning. Yes, forgiveness is important and so on and so forth. If someone really has wronged you. But if you see that person as only being there to test you, to help you grow, to help you develop, then it's hard for you to be angry at them. But it's also not an invitation to be angry at yourself. It's just recognize that you had a moment of weakness. Benjamin says, thank you for that explanation. I'm a very calm person and seldom angry, but yes, I notice that if I get triggered, it is bringing to the surface a deep-seated ego. Thank you so much. God bless you. So um, rest assured that your experience, you're not alone. It's not Your experience is not unique. Okay, I can, I can attest personally to very similar experiences and uh, the circumstances that were required to bring that demon to the surface were extraordinary. But the demon that was brought to the surface was just as extraordinary. So when you have moments like that, when you have experiences like that, you don't sweep them under the rug and don't let them pass without meditating on them because you're potentially throwing away a treasure trove of self-knowledge you're, and you're potentially throwing away a rare opportunity to study a demon who otherwise lives in complete anonymity deep down in his lair in his dungeon well aware well sorry well away from prying eyes and from your capacity to access and if you and if you are seldom angry what that means is it's the opportunities for your Divine Mother to orchestrate the type of circumstance required to bring that demon out of his lair into the surface are few and far between, which means what, that when they happen, you can't allow yourself to be distracted 
by the fact that, oh my God, I'm angry, or oh, how did they wrong me, or oh, should I forgive him, should I not forgive him? You know what? Recognize the entire experience for what it is, a test, a trial, an ordeal, and an opportunity. Remember um, the Chinese character for crisis and opportunity, right? And how they, they're, they're related. Um, um, yeah, it's the, the, the Chinese word for crisis has the character for opportunity in it or something. I oh, can't remember the specifics of that. But anyway, every crisis is an opportunity. That's the point. So, but we can only know that for sure if we meditate on those events, on those circumstances. Any other uh, questions? We're coming up on the four-hour mark, so if, uh, if anybody wants to ask anything, or uh, you know, for those of you who have stuck it out this long, that's uh, remarkable. Um, but we hope you found uh, today uh, beneficial and helpful. Um, and um, we hope that we were successful in our intention today to to yeah get down to the brass tacks really and really really share with you what <clears throat> what really matters and strip away all the superfluous stuff um so we hope you found it useful beneficial and uh if you did um don't forget to like the video and you know share it if you are so inclined so that others can benefit from this information and uh as always we want to thank you for being with us today and for sticking it out these almost four hours if you have any more comments or questions now would be the time okay come out okay so benjamin's just answered yes this is very beneficial guide worth re-watching to help free ourselves from bondage thank you and uh kamal manzuki says started doing visualization methods today that i'd long forgot about and then remembered suddenly it was sunday and was very glad to have caught the live stream in time well we're so happy to have you here come out um so the subject was sort of serendipitous <laughs> it's We love to hear that. And you're the second person today to say uh, today's uh, live stream was serendipitous. So, um, yeah, so sometimes we need a reminder, right? And sometimes it's useful to have a, a list, right? If, if there is such a thing, and of, of, but really the core, the essence. But if there's one takeaway we want you to take with you, um, it's, it's this right and um so remember remember your whole beingness all of who you are know thyself and all of these different levels and as you are practicing and as you're working and remember your divine mother always remember your divine mother and we have 
our um, here. This is our article on the Divine Mother. O Divine Mother, here art thou. We'll leave this, leave you with this because she is, she is the one that furnishes us with all that we need on our journey, on the path. And to walk that path without a visceral sense of all that she does for us, it's, you know, our innermost being and our Divine Mother, they're not jealous, they're not envious, they're not vindictive, they're not capable of such emotions. And, and they don't deprive us, per se. But for us to try to proceed on the spiritual path without remembering her, and without grasping what this graphic, what this image is revealing to us, And well, look, it really is a spiritual essential. It really is, you know, to walk the spiritual path and not comprehend who is it who is leaving us the breadcrumbs? Who is it who's arranging the serendipity? And to just take serendipity for granted. Or just say, oh, well, it's the universe, it's this, it's that, it's the other thing. No, it's your Divine Mother. And so, um, this is a very personal article, this one. And to grasp the devotion that we have to our Divine Mother, just read some love poems by Rumi because all of Rumi's love poetry is written for his divine mother. And when you, you grasp that the Mona Lisa is Leonardo da Vinci's divine mother and, and Beethoven's infamous immortal beloved that they named the movie after starring Gary Oldman and they were all trying to figure out which of his which of his so-called mistresses or whatever was his immortal beloved they all missed the point Beethoven's immortal beloved is his divine is his divine mother so in that context, you know, we can say that that's 
another spiritual essential. It's another essential practice. We, we've said as much because self-remembering, remembering your divine mother as part of your self-observation is important, but also remembering her, visualizing her as you do your pranayamas, as you do your meditations, and as you experience serendipities, and as you bless your food, remembering her, that's the body of the, of the Divine Mother. That's Divine Mother Nature. That's her body and her children that we are consuming when we eat. So, yeah, that's very much, very much a spiritual essential. And in our article, on the Divine Mother, we talk about serendipity and the origin of the word and the meaning of serendipity and how that relates to our Divine Mother. And you'll also know in reading that article how powerful and personal our experience And, um, and the type of orchestrations she is capable of on our behalf. And nothing happens by accident. Except for genuine accidents. <laughs> but that's, about, that's the law of accidents. But nothing, nothing serendipitous that happens to us is by accident. It's all arranged. It's all orchestrated by our Divine Mother. And knowing that and living from that place, from that place of knowing, is definitely an essential part of the spiritual journey. Any other questions, comments, or concerns? Anybody want to say anything? Anybody just want to say goodbye? <laughs> Please, now would be the time to do so because we're, uh, we're going to sign off, I think, fairly soon. Um, we'll give you another minute to type if you want to type something. Um, but again, thank you. Well, thank you, Jennifer, for being here. We always, uh, enjoy your presence and, uh, we hope you found it beneficial and helpful. And all, to all of you, uh, thank you again. Uh, we hope that, um, if you've learned something new, you're welcome, Benjamin. Thank you also for, for being here. Andrea says, it was interesting as usual. Thanks, Atlas. You're welcome, Andrea. Thank you for being here. Or Andrea, sorry. Um, if you found something new, if you learned something new, that that's great. If all you received is some valuable resources for you go to go and do your own research, look, um, there's plenty, there's plenty of time uh, this year for you to go through all the material that we shared for you. So you've got plenty of links now. Put them in a, put them in a, a folder and, um, and spend the next, you know, weeks and months going over them. Kamal Manzuki says, here's to hopefully being here again in a week. Blessings to all. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for the blessings. So to all of you, uh, Thank you for coming out. Um, we hope to see you again next week. And as always, take care and uh, in peace.